Really True Fiction is a podcast exploring famous stories to discover the wisdoms, lessons, insights, and ideas therein. Be advised that there will be heavy spoilers for whatever story we are discussing in this episode, as well as potential spoilers for other stories. Check episode notes or social media posts for additional spoilers. Please note that this podcast contains so many bad words and so many crude observations. If this is not your jam, please don't bring the toast. Welcome to my favorite episode of Really True Fiction. My name is Luke Mason. And my name is David Parker. Now, David, why do you think I'm saying that this is my favorite episode of Really True Fiction? Keeping in mind that I not I do not promise quality in this episode nor any other. <laughs> so what possible I, way could I have of judging that? I think it's the subject matter that you're particularly attached to. Oh, yeah. I, I love Star Trek. <laughs> Star Trek is basically your favorite show. <laughs> I can't get you to stop watching it. <laughs> yeah. Wait a minute. <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> yes, today on Really True Fiction, we are going to be discussing the center of the bullseye of my favorite story ever, I guess, probably, which is uh, Star Wars. Have you heard of said films? I, I've heard of them <laughs> and maybe even watched them a couple of times. Yes. So, right off the bat, to quench any of your questions about well star wars or star wars what which ones well, you know solo i didn't like that solo movie or it was fine <laughs> <laughs> i have many opinions about star wars that i don't think would be very interesting to many listeners out there so i won't go into them here but for this podcast we are actually just going to be focusing on the original trilogy the 1977, 1980, 1983 Star Wars, because I, the opinion I will say is that I think this is the crux of Star Wars and the ones by far most worth meditating on and thinking about. And I mean, I think a lot of people have meditated more recently on the sequels or the prequels and the sequels, uh, whereas we're going back to the basics because that's where you fall in love with Star Wars. Yeah. I mean, I have some affinities to some of the parts in other Star Wars movies, and I actually really, I really liked Force Awakens. I loved Rogue One. I would prefer not to share my thoughts on The Last Jedi, <laughs> and Solo was fine. Right. And I would doubly like to not share my thoughts on the prequels. <laughs> I think that just as a observation that has that's neither here nor there with what we talk about on this podcast one of the weaknesses one of the things that makes it difficult I'll put it to you that way one of the things that makes it difficult for Star Wars to expand its universe is that and I don't know I could be wrong about this this could be the deep dark long game of George Lucas but he the original trilogy George Lucas made a story that was self-contained and didn't need a bigger universe because that wasn't the point of the story. Um, and then if you, as opposed to like, if you compare that to like the MCU Marvel Cinematic Universe that was designed to be expansive, <laughs> a lot of the things that happen in the plot of especially the prequels makes you look like with a new eye on 
the original trilogy would be like, what the hell is going on here? Uh, case in point, in Attack of the Clones, 3PO um, has lived with Uncle Owen for, <laughs> for, think, for 10 years. years. Yeah. And then he doesn't recognize him when he buys him at the beginning of New Hope. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, yeah, I, the, or, they, they don't seem terribly concerned with consistency in the narrative. Well, yeah, it, it <laughs> it's just, really, you don't recognize this droid? <laughs> and then also the other, another one that I noticed that is funny is in Revenge of the Sith, how Chewbacca is hanging out with Yoda for a good chunk of the movie when there's the battle on Kashyyyk. And then there's the line from Han Solo in A New Hope where he says, I can't remember exactly verbatim, but it's like, I've been in a lot of places. I've seen a lot of things. I don't know about this uh, force, you say, this hokey thing or these Jedi or whatever, right? But yet he's been with Chewbacca for like, I think we're supposed to think at least 10 years at this point, and I've never had a conversation about the fact that Chewbacca knows one of the most famous Jedi Masters in the history of <laughs> Jedi. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? Like, I don't know. I just imagine now Chewbacca every time. You know the the way Chewbacca leans back <laughs> when he's playing that, um, oh, I forget what it's called, the, the chess-like yes, game. Yes, yes. I think he starts with a D. With R2, I just imagine he does that all the time. Han brings up the Force and the he's Jedi. Like, oh, I know the Force. Oh, I know, yeah. right? So those are just like, you know, okay. But anyway, we are treating the original Star Wars trilogy as its own self-contained story. And uh, one of the things that I really tried to do this time, which is so hard for me to do because I would say I've probably seen all of three. I've probably seen A New Hope. Empire Strikes Back, Return of the Jedi, all three of them at least 30 times in my life. Probably A New Hope is closer to 50. <laughs> and it's really the f- uh, the first movie I ever... He, he wasn't kidding, folks. This is his favorite story. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Because A New Hope is the first movie I ever remember watching at home. I'm sure I watched other ones before that, but I was six, I think. And my parents just... But we only got A New Hope on... VCR. It was a VHS at that time, you know, and I remember my my strongest memories of A New Hope were just how scary Darth Vader was because I was 6 and you know, yeah, it's like he's, he's scary. He's pretty scary. And the scene in the cantina where Obi-Wan draws his lightsaber and, and cuts the guy's arm cuts off. the guy's arm yeah. off. I remember thinking to myself, "Man, I need to get a flashlight like that." <laughs> Right? Yeah. Yeah. So I did my best this time around to watch it with fresh eyes. Like, imagine I'm watching this for the first time. And it's really hard to do, but it's really, it's kind of a fun exercise. I would say, if any, like, watch the original trilogy pretending like you don't know what's going to happen in the next movie. The end of Empire Strikes Back without Return of the Jedi is really, really, because, you know, I grew up with well, whatever happens in Empire, I know what happens in Return of the Jedi right away. Like, I can just watch it. But imagine waiting three years with that ending where Hans and Carbonite and... And Vader is Luke's father, yeah, maybe. Yeah. Like, imagine having those debates with your friends being like, oh, I don't know. He's definitely not. He's lying. Like, there's and no way. <laughs> without the internet to, yeah, like... Yeah, you have nothing. You have no peruse way. Peruse absurd think fan like, theories. magazines that they would put out, like, with fan theories and stuff. And you would read the magazines and argue with your friends. Actually, uh a movie we might do at some point, Clerks, has a really good uh, scenes where they argue about these things yeah. and, and go deep into the 
into the well that's a great um additional observation is that perhaps no movie has more saturated other movies and other tv shows and other forms of culture than star wars hat oh yeah i mean i think it it's probably the deepest in the zeitgeist of i mean i remember when uh force awakens came out and everybody was like it was like huge everyone wanted to see it and everyone was talking about it and i even remember the prequels coming out and uh and being a young man i think i was like well i don't remember how old i was exactly but young enough that i really enjoyed them just for the you know for what young boys enjoy movies like that for like sword fight or lightsaber duels and races and just cool cinematic adventures do you remember the first time you watched star wars i like the first the ones that we're discussing yeah yes i do but it was uh over christmas holidays and we had a day do you know how old you were yes i was um i was seven years old and i loved the ewoks i thought they were the coolest thing that had ever existed <laughs> but the funny thing is we were only supposed to watch one each day over the holidays, but we loved them so much, and my dad loved them so much, too, that we ended up watching all three in the same day. Classic. Classic. <laughs> so, yeah, no. I got a question for you, David. Mm-hmm. How do the inhabitants of the forest moon of Endor digitally cook their food? Digitally cook their food? Yes. Uh, I do not know. In an Ewok. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I'll probably intersperse. <laughs> A few, a few jokes. <laughs> I do a few Star Wars E-walk. jokes. <laughs> oh, that's great. Uh, yeah, like you just couldn't hold back. No, it's like it's like when I don't know if many of the, our listeners had their mums read to them growing up, but I remember my mom would finish a chapter and she'd say, okay, that's it for tonight. I'd be like, no, more. And this was one of those few experiences that I had had up until that point where I felt that way about a story that was in a movie because A, not a lot of trilogies, but B, it was such an interesting story and such a cool world. It just wrapped you in it, and you were just enthralled. Yeah. Well, it's. I would say without hyperbole, it's probably the most famous movie franchise ever. Yes. I don't know. I like there would there may be some that would rival it, but I don't know. Like what would rival Star Wars as like James Bond maybe? But again, yeah, but not even like. Well, not everyone watches. James well, and, Bond. and how about this? Like, what other franchise of original writing? Because a lot of movies or franchises, well, none are of original writing. adaptations. None. I would right? say none. Well, there's probably. Well, I won't let my the poverty of my imagination at this moment dictate my opinion on <laughs> okay, this. But fair I, enough. But fair I can't enough. think of anything. So I think though, to start diving into the meat of this, I would just say, like from the outset, I remember falling in love with Star Wars for things like you know the lightsabers and the X wings and the stormtroopers and how everything looked and sounded like it was cool right it's cool and exciting and it's just been one of the greatest kind of personal pleasures of my life as i've become an adult to start really appreciating the much deeper aspects of star wars that only become apparent to you once you start learning a little bit more about the world you learn a little bit about psychology and myth and storytelling and character styles and arcs and then it's like you know you love star wars as a kid you come you you kind of are away for it for you know 10 to 15 years you know not away from it but just you're doing other stuff in life and you just bring so much other knowledge that you've brought back that you gain in that time and then you go back to something like star wars that you loved as a kid and you just 
look at it from that lens instead. And I would say that it might even have more to give for an adult than a kid. I mean, obviously, you could never measure those things, but well, it does seem like it adult, does both. adults value it even more than than kids do. Like the, like you said, there's a an underlying level that a, a child enjoys these things the imagination the imaginary world that's created the the scope of the world i mean i think we were discussing when we were rewatching this just how incredible it is that you feel like you're in a story that has complexity that like the way they tell it is they don't explain everything right that's they're not saying oh this is why this is that this way there's a few explanations like oh why does luke have another lightsaber oh he rebuilt one right but most of the time you're just it's just assumed that of course this is just the way it is in in Star Wars in this universe and and you're just taken along for the ride which really helps you know with a suspension of disbelief because everyone in the story is acting like they have they're real like they have full whole whole characters around them and you're just seeing a scene with them instead of having a story told with them and if that yeah. makes sense yeah 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 what you just said made me like kind of realize that one of the reasons Star Wars works is that none of the characters in the story, in the movies, think that the stupid things that everyone is saying are stupid, right? Like yes. All yes. of the absurd technological, like all the technology and the technological terms, they sound crazy to us as an audience. And like, how does that work, <laughs> right? But no one in the movie acts like that they just act normal about it so again like that suspension of disbelief is so well manufactured for us because i've talked about this with another couple friends about star wars but like if you start getting into the details about how things work in star wars you have missed the point with a rocket launcher <laughs> yeah yeah somehow you just the, you know the target was completely like off. oh yeah. how did like how does anything work how did hundreds of stormtroopers not catch Han and Luke on the Death Star, yeah. right? Or that scanner. How is yeah. that scanner so big and yet they're able to build like bionic hands with seeming simplicity that work with your nerves? Right? Yeah, exactly. Like all of it, right? Like how does any of this tech work? Uh, but because it's about the adventure, that doesn't strike you in the same way, you know? And so, you know, to start at the beginning, I don't know the details of... Uh, this story, but I know that George Lucas, the man who created Star Wars, was a, if not a student exactly, he was a devotee or a reader of Joseph Campbell. And Joseph Campbell was a, I guess maybe you would say an interpreter of a lot of the psychological theory of uh, Carl Jung, right? And so Joseph Campbell did a lot of work on archetypes. And he wrote this book, Joseph Campbell wrote this book called The Hero with a Thousand Faces kind of thing. And in that book, Joseph Campbell kind of, I guess, compiles myths from all over the world, from cultures, you know, in South America, Australia, Africa, Asia, like everywhere, every country and every continent. Like, what are the motifs? That, that, that are all shared. Like, that are, are shared archetype? in all the stories, right? Mm. So that's why he wrote this book of A Thousand Faces, because he boiled it down to what he called a meta-myth. And the meta-myth... I, <laughs> I, I read Hero with a Thousand Faces a while ago. I can't remember exactly, but it's something like the hero is the person who's 
in a scenario that they are starting to feel too big for, or they're in a hometown, let's say, or a home scenario that is starting to get too small for their ambitions. They want to get into the wilder, wider world. They have they are met with some sort of traumatic or difficult experience that sends them out into that world. They also have a mentor who teaches them things. They go out into the world. They uh, experience new things that challenge and grow them. And then they return to their own home, a changed person, and become something like the mentor, right? So it's like this circle of a situation that's hard for you or like below you or below the hero, (laughs) right? And the traumatic event, they grow, they change, they go out into the world, they learn, they suffer, they get better for their suffering, and eventually they come back to where it all started to bring something better to that place and to show their change, right? Which is what essentially the plot of Star Wars. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and, and it's like that uh, poem by T.S. Eliot, you know, the end of all our exploring will be to re- return to where we came from and know it for the first time. I butchered that quote, but the, the concept of r- returning changed is also like, look at Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. Like when they come back to the Shire, they're not the same and they actually end up saving the Shire in the books, uh, obviously not in the movies, but I think we can... Yeah, I'll agree that those uh, motifs, those archetypes mm-hmm. are all of our favorite fantasy and sci-fi stories at the very least, but I would say to some degree all stories yes. can be boiled down. Well, the the archetypal ones, for sure. Yes. You know, the Lord of the Rings, the Harry Potters, the Star Wars. The ones that seem to break through to to be beloved by yes. everyone. Mm-hmm. I think Jordan Peterson says, if you want to find an archetype, just look where many people like most people are looking for right there for right. their stories <laughs> yes yes right and what is like i remember re- when i was reading hero with a thousand faces it's not the whole book either it's just like a chapter he talks about the meta myth or the mono myth like the myth that comes from all the other myths I remember reading and be like, this is the plot of A New Hope. <laughs> this is exactly, like, it's like George Lucas just took that and, and made A New Hope. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, there's, I've also seen interviews with George Lucas where he talked about what his goal was in making Star Wars. Because, I mean, this was obviously when he made it, because I think they filmed, production of it was mostly in 1976. Like, everyone was like, what are you doing? <laughs> what what is this movie what are these people saying yeah a space opera i yeah. think he called it or yeah. something like that yeah but george lucas said i just wanted a story that gave people well he's you know he's got his kind of like i just wanted a story <laughs> you know, he's yeah. like his kind of mousy quiet voice he says i just wanted a story that gave people mythological and psychological motifs that played with their subconscious a little bit in a way that maybe they would appreciate later on too you know and that the the mythical element of the story is really the energetic part of Star Wars that I think keeps it alive multi-generationally, right? Again, obviously, because these stories are the ones that we've had for thousands and thousands of years. Another reason I love this, I, this way of making a story with the monomyth is that it's accessible to anyone in the world. Even though, like I remember when I lived in Korea... 
people loved Star Wars. They loved the movie. They got so into it. And it wasn't even, <laughs> like, there isn't anyone in Star Wars who looks like anyone in Korea. <laughs> like, anyone yeah, from that, Korea, right? That didn't matter, didn't matter to, them, to yeah. them. Which, again, is, well, no, I won't talk about my annoyance with people and and other star wars movies (laughs) um but when we start on tatooine at the beginning of a new hope with luke i just wrote he's a kid in the middle of nowhere and this is the beginning of the hero's journey right he's a farmer he's a, a, a moisture farmer and everything in the beginning is him just feeling like he needs to move on his friend biggs has has already gone to the academy you know, I he think wants all, well, basically all of his friends have left at this point. It, it sounds like like he has no friends his age. His aunt even has that little scene where she's like, "Oh, you know, he needs to get out there. Like, yeah, he doesn't want to be here." And anymore. he feels kind of like entombed a little bit in his role because, like, she says, "Yeah, he's not a farmer. He's got too much of his father in him." That's what I'm afraid of, <laughs> you know. Yeah, Uncle Owen. This time watching it, unlike any other time I've watched it, I was like. Man, Uncle Owen's kind of a bit of a jerk. Like, Well, he's at least a grump. Yeah, he's definitely a grump, yeah. You know? So, interspersed in all of Star Wars, which I think can never be undersold, is its humor. Yes, yes. And so, one of the things that I love is Luke's initial... Like, the very first scene Luke and 3PO are together, Luke's already annoyed with him. Like, he's like, gives him a hand wave, you know? I just think, <laughs> like, that's a perfect take on 3PO. But... Luke feels the helplessness of the status quo, right? Like you can see it in his annoyance and his whininess. And when he's talking after he meets up with Obi-Wan and he's talking to him, he kind of has this line where it's like, oh, it's such a long way from here, you know? And Obi-Wan replies with, well, that's your uncle talking. And it was, it made me a little bit like, well, you know, it's, it's, so hard to not know it that scene reminded me a lot of being young again or like you know like the end of your teenage years let's say going into your adult life and just feeling like everything is in front of you but hard to get to because you just are trapped somewhere you know and it's that part of Luke's psychology at the beginning that's fighting between his spirit of adventure and his uncle, like his, you know, his adventure in one ear, his uncle in the other ear, you know? Yeah, like, I think the thing that I, I like about Star Wars that we I think you find in your own adventure, your own life, is we all kind of start out small. I mean, I guess some people travel around the world when they're young and, you know, their their parents are... But I think for the vast majority of people kind of grow up in a, in a more stable, local environment and they know there's more out there and they want to see those things out there and they want to, you know, achieve great things. And he wants to, you know, he... You know that in his mind, he's not worried about dying in the rebellion. He thinks he's going to be a hero of the rebellion because these are his heroes, right? The people who are are fighting the Empire. But he doesn't know anything about what it's like to fight the Empire. He doesn't know anything about anything except for what's his little planet and not even his little planet, his little neighborhood, which apparently is like his aunt and uncle and and some weird creatures. (laughs) Like, And he has friends, but they're all gone now. And I think... I think we've all experienced what he's going through, which is that waiting place, but being like, I don't want to wait anymore. I just want to go. I want to, I want to go get out there. Yeah. He wants to get out there, but he's clearly like ill-prepared. Yeah. He doesn't know how to get out there. Exactly. But in the story, 
what again is so deeply mythological is that it's not until he goes back to his uncle and aunt's farm and sees them you know decimated and killed by the empire and stormtroopers and it's a great scene where he looks down i i say like he looks down a boy he looks up a slightly more resolved boy (laughs) you know there is there's like a more resolved look in his face because this is his traumatic experience that forces him to now have to make an adult decision i think that there is something so again so vital in that idea of tragedy tragedy often can be what makes people grow up yeah you know like what makes them have to take on more responsibility i wonder i like i i don't know i mean there's probably interesting studies out there on people who've experienced tragedy earlier in life like what the long-term effects are i'm wondering if one of them is more resolve potentially with someone who has a good mentor like luke does with obi-wan maybe that's the key right you need like a mentor who can help you through that type of thing because imagine what luke would feel when he when he saw his parent uncle and aunt killed without obi-wan right yeah well he'd be dead too well but but he does seem to have a uh yeah like people have different reactions to tragedy right some people react very poorly to it and I, i agree i think how do you react well to it when you have no tools with which to deal with it unless you have someone who's helping you walk through it yeah you need those people in your life and yeah i completely agree obviously obi-wan is helping him walk through this and figure these things out but also luke does it like luke moves on pretty quickly it seems <laughs> yeah he does i <laughs> i think that's a star wars thing more than a luke thing like, yeah, the, like the Leia doesn't seem too traumatized by her entire planet. Being uh, yeah. <laughs> well, that's one of the things I noticed about. Well, I, I guess I already knew it because I've seen Star Wars so many times. But every time I rewatch it, I can't help but notice that the, the plot is so fast paced. Right. Yeah. They like mo- it, yeah, they move really quickly. Everything it moves really quickly. And I think that is what needed to happen to make this movie successful because it, again, doesn't let you dwell on the details it's not a kind of realistic right because really the the details aren't that important no they're not important but like yes i think that we are imagine the scenario where (laughs) they rescue princess leia after alderaan explodes but the next couple scene like the next two minutes later it's not the battle of yavin like we're already into another really exciting part of the movie that our attention is thrown away from the fact like oh man her attitude doesn't really make any sense right now <laughs> yeah she seems like, really really calm it is funny when um, yeah. luke is pouting over obi-wan's death a guy and he met like a day ago <laughs> yeah and her whole planet has been destroyed well, there's the, the numerous references to i've gone i've got to go see an old friend and it's yeah. like uh <laughs> yeah exactly you met yoda once and then yeah. you abandon him <laughs> yeah well again Star Wars as motif, it makes sense. Star Wars as detailed drama, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. I think that's. I think that's an important point, Luke. Is that this story is not about the details at all. And when you get wrapped up in the details, you're only going to cause yourself. Well, I mean, it's interesting to get wrapped up in the details, but I think you're going to miss the point. There's other stories to do that. Even I would say Star Trek. 
yeah. maybe not the movies as much. I haven't seen all the movies, but I know that there's like more detail in the in the shows that are interesting. That's why I say if you get wrapped up in the details of Star Wars, you're missing the point with a rocket launcher. In that yeah. you couldn't yeah. you couldn't be missing the point harder <laughs> if you went that direction, right? So then the next thing that I was interested in is like the scene in there's two scenes in A New Hope where there's a little bit of well, there's a lot of tension and a lot of A New Hope between Luke and Han, right? But the two that I struck me the most is the scene at the cantina where Han tells the price of how long of how much it's going to take to transport Obi-Wan, Luke and the droids to Alderaan and Luke says, I'm like, what? For that price, I could get our own ship and fly. And then um, Han's like, well, who's going to fly it, you kid? And Luke says something like, you bet I could. I'm not such a bad pilot myself. And then later in the movie when they've escaped from the Death Star and Luke shoots down one of the X-Wings in the gunship. And Han says, nice shot, kid. Don't get cocky. Now, I don't think in the movie either of them meant it this way, but it made me think of how interesting it is when there's a tension between two people who stand to play a similar role in a scenario and how that actually makes a person a little uncomfortable. Right. right like it's like when you're dealing with a, a hierarchy situation in general. Like yeah. there's never any question among any of them whether Obi-Wan Obi-Wan's kind of above the fray. He's not jockeying for position here. But there, there's a sense between Han and Luke that, well, wh- who's going to be in charge? Who's kind of the boss here? And yeah. Han's like, well, I'm older, and I'm, you know, I've I've seen the world. And Luke's like, you seem kind of like a cocky bastard. Like- yeah. Well, and I mean, and probably Han can't help but maybe see Luke as a potential threat because Luke potentially could be what Han is. Yeah. Right. Like yeah. Luke is a good pilot, so. If I can well, fly he's this, also, I mean, there's I also need... the tension of the love interest thing, yeah. right? Well, I am a good pilot. Why do I need you? Or I am a good shot. Why do I need you? <laughs> and, yeah. And yeah. I think that is also a human universal is, I mean, I can't personally speak of it with women, but definitely with men, a younger generation who is becoming competent, starting to be the ones who could steal your role or your yes, spot yes. in whatever social situation or whatever hierarchy or job and i mean even for myself i have to work really hard on how i feel about a situation where i'm in a scenario and i'm not the person who has the most jokes right or i'm not the goofball or i'm not like someone who is like me but potentially better like no one else really kind of subconsciously threatens my identity like there are people who could be way better than me at something that i don't care about as long as it's not my thing right but yeah right? But when you're competing on your thing like yeah. being a pilot i guess is in this example but yeah. like like you said with humor mm-hmm. oh that makes a lot yeah and those are the people we hate the most yeah. right or not hate but uh have the most trouble with well because the easier scenario there is to just get rid of that person not improve your own capacities Yes. Right? Yeah. Which would be the more mature thing to try to do. I could, <laughs> this is kind of a funny example, but I could just go and learn more jokes, right? right. You <laughs> could like funny hone because, your craft, right? I only say that's funny because anyone who knows me will be like, no, no more jokes. Don't go learn more. Please, please, no more. <laughs> you have enough. <laughs> yeah. And there's like a category that's way above. So like, I like to play guitar, but like, 
It's not like I'm threatened by, you know, Jack White or like there's just people who are in a complete like the Obi-Wans, I guess, right? Yeah. The people yeah. who are way above the fray. But, you know, if I'm playing an open mic night and there's someone also at the open mic night who plays, you know, nineties alt rock songs and early two thousands pop punk songs and they're like a little better than me, that stings me in a way that someone who's a hundred times better than me at guitar but is playing folk music never could right it's like that that competitive spirit rises up in you and you're kind of like oh i i need to like fight for my position in the hierarchy or in the yeah. crowd right like, and and th- what's so interesting with that is that it's not a choice like that impulse just happens right like i think there's just probably something evolutionary in that do you, do you think it has a lot to do with identity too like it's it's how you identify it's how you see yourself and then when confronted by someone else having that identity or that Ego yeah, I mean, there's definitely a insecurity factor going on there because I guess I passively like the idea of if some people I know are talking and the con- the idea of a joke comes up, I'm the first name on someone's lips as opposed to not me, like somebody else. And like, it's a stupid. That shouldn't <laughs> yeah, bother that shouldn't me bother you, because but... really what's happening is there's more humor in the world. Which you so, should, but which, which you like why. to bring. But yeah. the question is, are, do you like it because you're the one who brings well, it, or do you like it in and of itself? It's that default setting. Yes, that is just a great example of the default setting that is hard to get over, but you can't unless you even see it. And I just noticed that a little bit in A New Hope with Luke and Han, like that's a, who that's who great... is in charge here? Yeah, right. Who who is the better pilot? But it's like because. With Obi-Wan gone and the scenes, like, well, Luke has to basically persuade Han with money, <laughs> right? So <laughs> yes. that's the real boss of everything, <laughs> I guess. But Han it is. like a there, There's a really interesting tension between Luke and Han and A New Hope about who is going to be the leader. And if you go by age, it should be Han. And Han has a lot of ability, but Luke, it's not like Luke has no ability, right? And he's also got all this force sensitivity. Yeah, exactly. I also noticed how like while he kill cares very deeply for obi-wan uh when obi-wan makes that sacrifice he still hears obi-wan in his head right like he hears uh run luke run you know the door shoot the door or something like that what it made me think about is it's kind of like how you still hear someone you love over your shoulder when they're gone kind of thing um how they're still in your corner because obviously in the story it's the force <laughs> yeah <laughs> obi-wan the using for- the yeah, force, force ghost but in real life it's more like memories, right? Like you remember people who are no longer here with you. And depending on how meaningful your relationship was with them, I find with things I do, I think about what a person might say to me about this kind of thing that I'm doing. Or even just memories of things. They don't necessarily have to be gone. They could be, um, they could just not be present. Yeah. And like, I have lots of those where like a mentor or a friend has said something really meaningful to me that has really kind of either shaken me out of my mental state or enlightened me about something about myself that I hadn't been able to fully articulate. And I remember those things and, and they stick with me and they, they do come into my head in moments of what, whenever. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it's another really, I mean, I, I hadn't even thought of this till now, but like, there's a lot of connection between a lot of Eastern cultures and ancestor, I guess, worship. I don't want to like ancestor respect, veneration, veneration, yeah. right. That I think 
is tapping into a similar motif here where Obi-Wan is gone, <laughs> but not forgotten to yes. Luke kind yeah. of thing. And it's Obi-Wan's wisdom that still echoes in Luke's ear after he's gone that still continues. Well, I mean, and obviously when he becomes a force ghost later, but Obi-Wan's wisdom continues to shape Luke's behavior even after Obi-Wan's gone. And I think that that is super deep about thinking about the people we care about and the people we admire, their impact on our life is um, as deep as it goes because it still affects us when they're gone. Yeah, yeah. You know? Like, those are the relationships that really matter. They're not the, like the brief cool little friendship you have with someone at camp which was awesome but like you can't even remember their name now i mean that would be an excellent heuristic to just disperse it to the world like what would the person i admire the most in the history of my life think about this next thing i'm going to be doing yes yes good point <laughs> you know? yeah and i like that um and it happens a few times right for luke and obi-wan um another thing i really like about luke in a new hope is um there's like an attractiveness and an inspiration to optimism when it's not completely uh, naive. So when they're talking about the data plans, how to destroy the Death Star, how there's a exhaust port right below the main port that they can hit, but it's only two meters. And then fake wedge says two meters. That's impossible. Even for a computer. And then Luke very like sprightly says back, it's not impossible. I used to bullseye Womprats back home, and they're not much bigger than two meters. <laughs> it's just like that type of reaction to a hard situation, which is both, it's optimistic, but it's not naive because he actually gives a tangible example, right? Like Womprats are things, I've shot them, I can do this. It's not just kind of like, well, let's just do it, guys. We gotta, you know? Like he gives, he's he's excited, but he also has, like he's got a foot in anticipation and a foot in reality yeah which is stabilized he's got experience that he's utilized to say okay i know that something like this is possible but he but it's also he it's hard right and he he's kind of admitting to that but a good leader will encourage someone in that way like i remember one back in university we we played like dorm football uh flag football and like our RA would always pump us up and be like, we're going to go out there and we're going to win. Even if it was against a team that was obviously going to slaughter us, that optimism built camaraderie and built uh, the desire to work together. As opposed to it was like, I guess we just got to go out there and play guys. Like nobody, <laughs> nobody wants a leader like that. Yeah, right? exactly. And in that situation, like Luke knows the stakes. Right. And I think this is why this is like, yeah, these are emergent characteristics of leaders. People who can inspire you, but not, but still give it context. I don't know. I like that. I just thought of that now. <laughs> <laughs> I like that too. No, it is an emergent. Well, he is an emergent leader. It's like that's one of the other thing about archetypes is it's the development of someone with potential into becoming a leader of men. Right. right. Yeah, definitely. And like the cool thing about that is it's all of the things Luke has done in his life before that he didn't know would help him become a leader, right? Like he didn't know becoming a great pilot would help him become a leader in the Rebel Alliance, but he did it anyway. And so it's like taking the strengths he's already had for other reasons and, to, and making that into 
something for everybody, which is a really cool thought too, right? Yeah, yeah. And then moving into Empire, uh, I liked how he was caught off guard by the Wampa at the beginning, and it's a good reminder of even as you grow, there's still lots to be on guard for. So like to not get too ahead of yourself in your growth to be like, well, I can handle anything now, right? Not that Luke was singing that, but I was just like, yeah, Wampas are always out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I like how he shows his ingenuity when he's fighting those AT-ATs. You know, he uses a, he goes up there, uses lightsaber to cut off part of it and throws a grenade in there. He's still really tested by Yoda because he's still too young or like too <laughs> oh, I immature. Like how, I like how Yoda's like, I'm not going to train him. He's too he's too old, right? And I, I like that idea, which kind of permeates Star Wars, that like there's always these rules and then they're always kind of for the sake of, of doing the right thing, I guess, or, or getting the right thing over the line. They kind of break the rules. I think that's an important thing because so often in life, we can get caught up in, no, this is the right way to do things. And we can miss the opportunity. Like, if, if Yoda just been firm on, no, I'm not training him. He's he's too much like his father. He's going to be hateful. And if he just done that, then the story doesn't work, A. But B, the universe isn't saved, right? Yeah. Like, the, the, the bad guys win. That one choice to say, you know what? I got to do this, mm-hmm. even though it's I'm not supposed to. He doesn't want to. Yeah, and he doesn't want to. He, he hates <laughs> the idea. But, <laughs> but Obi-Wan convinces him to. So that leads us into the cave scene. The cave scene in Empire Strikes Back, which to me is the beginning of the most important part of Star Wars. Or it's the setup. That'd be the right word. The setup of the cave scene where, you know, Yoda says to Luke... Or Luke says, what's in there? And Yoda says, only what you bring with you. And of course, in the cave, he sees Vader, cuts off Vader's head. Inside Vader's helmet is his own face, right? And it's the beginning of the archetype of the part of yourself that lives in your worst enemy or the part of your worst enemy that lives in you. This is the setup that pays off at the end of Return of the Jedi in the throne room scene in the final showdown between Luke and Vader. So I'll finish the thought more there when we get to the throne room scene but i'm just noting as we pass by that i think actually the cave scene is the most important scene in all of star wars because it it's the setup of the star wars syllogism i guess it's the beginning of the syllogism in star wars where the deepest archetype there is is set up for us to be concluded at the end right amazing how star wars is probably better than almost any other story at giving you the feeling like you've hit pay dirt like Mm -hmm. oh wow that you know that is that makes sense it's not confusing and all the while being exciting yeah right and a little scary like the cave scene is scary as a kid Oh, for sure. So then the next thing he does, you know, he doesn't he doesn't finish his training in order to help his friends. And I, uh, this is one of the few scenes in Star Wars where I don't really know what to think about it. So I wanted your thoughts a little bit too, because I'm like, on the one hand, you're being really selfless to go help your friends and try and save them, but you're also being really naive. So it's like admirable and kind of pathetic. And I don't know which one to think more about. Like you're probably clearly falling into a trap here but you just want to go help your friends because you know they're in trouble. 
Yeah, I think it's one of those moments in life where youth, uh, you know, fools rush in or where angels fear to tread, right? Yeah. It's that idea that, I mean... <laughs> That's a good one. And Yoda's like, don't go. You you, you know, you, you're not going to be able to help them, and you might destroy everything they're hoping to achieve. And when I thought about it, what does that mean? What does Yoda mean by that? I think what Yoda means is... They're hoping to defeat the Empire. That's the whole purpose of everything they're do that they're doing. That's what Leia cares about. I mean, less so Han, but uh, that's what his friends are hoping to achieve, his friends that are working with the Rebels. And I think what he does in that moment, he's the hope. He's the new hope. He's the return of the Jedi. He's the only one that can stop the Emperor. The, the Emperor isn't going to get stopped by a bunch of, you know, fighter pilots. Or like if we go into Rogue One, it's just it's not it, it like you're not going to beat the Empire. You might uh, you might slow it down, you might cause it annoyance, but you're not going to beat it unless you can beat the Emperor. And that's Luke's whole purpose. That's that's what he that's why he. I mean, in the narrative, the hero has a destiny, right? The hero is is there for a purpose, and his purpose is to defeat the Emperor, the to balance the Force. Which, funnily enough, I guess Anakin does, or so, Vader does. So right. I think, I think he's putting at risk the larger purpose of his journey in order to fulfill an impulse, which is loyal, which is a good impulse, right? That's the thing. It's it is actually a positive impulse to be loyal and to care about your friends, but sometimes we have to take the immediacy of our emotions. And think about the long-term impacts of our actions. Yeah, that's a good way. Yeah, and, I mean that's totally. And this what goes he's back doing. to the idea of sacrifice, right? To sacrifice the present for the future. Mm -hmm. And he, but but the thing is, I don't know that his decision is illogical. But I don't think he even really realizes who he is or what he is, and what he's trying to achieve. He doesn't really know anything about the Emperor. He he can't even conceive of Vader because he's actually never fought Vader before. Mm -hmm. He's never even seen Vader. I don't and, think, but and so he's, no, he's seen Vader very briefly in the Death or in the, in the, Death, in the Death, Star. Death Star. Yeah, but he has never confronted Vader. He's he's very ignorant of everything here, and his positive, let's say, moral impulse for good is the defense of his friends. But that is in conflict with the overall purpose of what his friends and he and supposedly he is trying to achieve. So it's like the tight casting iron making an adult out of a child right where those childish impulses can still be really great but they're not reflected enough to be taking everything into account it's, right? like, the, it's like the marshmallow problem right that they, they put yeah. before kids it's like you can have a one marshmallow now or five minutes from now you can have two marshmallows right and they're like they almost always take the one marshmallow because they don't they don't have impulse control mm -hmm. um even though there's a better future uh, and I think, I think that is a big. And he doesn't listen to Yoda about no. it either, right? And Yoda would know something like, "Hey, I know who Vader is. I know that he's just trying to get you because you're force sensitive." Or they never use that term. There, you you are with the force. Uh, so this is clearly a trap. But Luke doesn't even like consider any of that. I mean, Yoda doesn't really say it like that either, which maybe. I don't know. Yoda could have maybe been a little bit more forthcoming. Well, definitely for Yoda could have. Yoda could always be more. Obi Wan and Yoda could have been way more forthcoming. <laughs> it's like, but it, again, that's a detail that would be stupid to the plot yeah. because the way that 
it is revealed of Luke and Vader's character is couldn't be more perfect. It needed to be Vader who told him to shock him and us. Again, that was a scene where I imagined not knowing that. Like obviously, I, I remember not knowing. I that. am your father is saturating in the culture, but imagine sitting watching that movie for the first time and not knowing that. And like I, how I, I remember that how yeah well it's it's mind blowing I right? know it was like oh my goodness what actually is a hilarious like there are great great videos on YouTube of parents capturing their kids reacting to that scene so there's these hilarious videos of like seven eight nine year olds watching Empire Strikes Back for the first time and when it when loot when Vader says I am your father kids being like oh what. <laughs> you know, just like the most authentic kid yes. surprise reactions oh, I, to things. I haven't seen those, but I definitely have to, I'm going to watch those. Yeah, yeah, for sure. That sounds awesome. Yeah, they're hilarious. Moving right along to Return of the Jedi <laughs> with Luke. <laughs> the first thing that I noticed about him in that is that he there's the hologram where he the droids are there and Luke's in the hologram and he flatters Jabba to get Jabba's guard down. Whether it works or not is debatable, but he's still flattering Jabba with a, your excellency, your your wisdom, whatever, right? And so I just made the note of like, man, you always got to watch your ego <laughs> because if, especially if you are someone who has standing or power, you're going to get flatterers and flatterers won't keep you sharp, which can contribute to a downfall. And that's what Luke was trying in that scenario, which is kind of funny. <laughs> he has some quick thinking in the rancor pit, which is like, okay, man, now one of the things we've noticed in his growth is he's really good at paying attention to his surroundings. Which again, I think is a a super crucial component to leadership is really knowing your surroundings, physical or social or environmental or whatever, right? Because quick thinking, he sees the rock, he sees the door, he makes a quick plan. He's only got a second to make that plan, and he can do it. And it's like, I mean, we never see it, but who else could do that in Star Wars? Maybe Lando. <laughs> Lando makes a couple quick plans, but. And what I thought was funny is that he's still a little bit insolent to Jabba when he actually shows up, right? So I'm like, <laughs> the note I wrote was, still not quite Yoda. <laughs> yeah, Luke, Luke's got this uh, chip on his shoulder, I think, throughout the entire movie and or movies. And it never really seems to, like, he's always kind of annoying to some degree, right? Yeah. There's, as an adult. Until the very end, I would say. Yeah. As an adult, when you're watching this, you're like, ugh, like. He's got something, and I, it's hard to say what it is. I mean, it's hard yeah. to pinpoint, but there's something that's just... You can understand why Han would be a little annoyed by him. <laughs> totally. Well, he's a bit of a brat. Well, it's, it's, <laughs> I love that moment where Han finds out that Luke's become a Jedi Knight or whatever. He's like, oh, man, I go away, and people start thinking that they're Jedi Knights. Yeah, delusions and, of grandeur. Yeah, that's what it is, delusions <laughs> of grandeur. Yeah. yeah, well, and what is, like... It's interesting for Return of the Jedi, the first little bit of it, because Luke is clearly much better than he was at things, right? I well, mean, I think there's he a, does save them. There's a fairly long time period that seems to fast. I mean, at the very least, he had to build his lightsaber. I mean, we don't we don't know how long it was, but I remember actually growing up, you read those, and then I would go to the library and get Star Wars books, and they had a whole book of, of between Empire and uh, Return of the Jedi, and I I like that's one of the things that I like about. Uh, Star Wars is that the world is so rich that's producing those three simple movies. Like that, the, fundamentally they're not that complex no. of movies. Uh, but the world is so rich that people just want to live in that world. Mm -hmm. Like they want to explore it because it's so interesting. Yeah. And Luke, obviously, I think the the first memory I have of when Luke 
kind of comes in, you're like, oh, a hero's here now. Like, yeah. That's the first moment you're like, yeah, Luke gets lucky as a kid taking out the, not lucky, but Luke, Luke doesn't seem like a hero even at the end of Return of the Hope. Or, I'm sorry, A New Hope. <laughs> but he does feel like a hero even when he just walks in and Return of the Jedi. You're like, that. That's a yeah, hero. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's well, a hero. They do that in the cinematography, too. Like, the way they, they have him shot at yes, the beginning yes. from the distant, raising the gate. He's definitely, like... There's something different about him. At there's the beginning a power of in him now, yeah, right? Yeah, there's a power, but he's still not quite there. But it's still so great how he returns to his home planet, saves his friends. Like, he, this time he does save his friends. He's able to, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. He basically takes out all of Jabba's soldiers. I mean, he gets help from Leia and Han a little bit. But Han's busy saving Lando, and Leia's busy choking Jabba. Choking Jabba in her golden bikini. (laughs) You know what? I would just say, like, I was thinking about that watching Return of the Jedi this time. I was like, man, because I hear it's like there's a contingent of people in the world who just think that like that scene is completely gratuitous for its sexualizing sexualizing of Leia. But I would just say, like, I think it is completely in consonance with the character of Jabba the Hutt. Because he is lecherous yeah, yeah, to yeah, true, have, true. you know, scantily clad slaves around. I mean, he's got those other women that he's One got of them dancing he around to, to the Rancor, yeah, right? To the Rancor, yeah. So I would say it's it it's not gratuitous, is my take, because of what Jabba is actually like. Well, and it also <laughs> makes you really hate Jabba right yeah. away. Which right. is, as if you didn't already, this just adds more fuel to the fire. Like, you don't really have... A, the only reason you have to hate Jabba is that, you know, he's not nice to Han, and he's got Han, like, sitting up on his wall. But then once he does that to Leia, you're like, what a what an asshole. Like, Yeah, well, I mean, like Jabba, Jabba is, you know, representative of that type of guy, I guess, who would just totally treat women as an object. Yes, right? Exactly. And I think that is his that's the reason we are well and I am most disgusted by him is his just total indifference to the personhood of Leia and his other dancing slaves that he just sees them as objects to be admired for their look. And so I think we would be the worse off without that scene for how that is represented and being like, oh, okay. Of all of the things to hate about Jabba, that's actually the worst, I think. Yeah, and I think it it, con- <laughs> it contextualizes him really well. Yeah. Like, very quickly. Like, I think that's one of the ma- most masterful things about Star Wars is how quickly it makes you feel a feeling about a character. Yeah, totally. And it's and, and the, so the first part of Return of the Jedi is a great reminder of a kind of the circular part of the hero's journey where luke comes back to his own planet and is stronger and is able to take on the things that would have defeated him before his journey right and it's a good setup for the rest of it because then he goes to dagobah and yoda is basically like i told you i told you i told you right and luke says i'm sorry and like this is the first time we really get some contrition out of luke i think and some like kind of authentic humility in him and so I think that scene is also super important to his growth too, where he's actually able to apologize to Yoda for his. Yeah, you're right, and and that is a huge part of growth is realizing when you made a mistake, mm-hmm. right? And being able to admit. And it. a good leader, like a a truly effective leader, will admit when a mistake has been made because then your followers trust you more. Mm-hmm. And so then 
as we move to like Luke's climax. (laughs) (laughs) He's talking about Vader and he says, there's good in him. I have felt it. I have to try. And it's like all about not giving up on him. Right. And, you know, he knows Vader is his dad. So he feels the good in him and he wants to go for it. And it's just so admirable because when he talks to him, he's like, I feel the good in you. And part of that is what, I mean, we'll talk about this more in a little while, but part of what is so interesting about Return of the Jedi is you start to see, in, in, in moments of silence, which is what's so interesting, you start to see Vader's cracking of his own conscience, right? He doesn't have the same quick uh, rebuttals to everything in Return of the Jedi like he does in Empire Strikes Back because you can... I mean, not that Vader has any facial expressions, which is a funny meme, but <laughs> yeah. by his silence, you get the sense that he's thinking more about stuff than he usually does. And then for me, the payoff of Star Wars, the deepest payoff of Star Wars is the scene in the throne room after the lightsaber battle and Luke has has Vader dead to rights. He's got him on the ground. He's chopped his arm off and he... He, he looks at his hand, which is mechanical now because it's the same hand that Vader cut off in Empire. And he looks where Vader's missing and it's like a, it's not a subtle <laughs> no, <laughs> thing, no, right? No. Where um, Luke is now realizing that this is, this is the payoff of the cave scene. Because without the cave scene where Luke sees himself in Vader, he can't see that he's becoming Vader when he's got him dead to rights, right? So that cave scene is the payoff for when Luke chooses to not go through with killing Vader, which would have been giving into hatred, giving into what would have made him the bad guy. And he throws his lightsaber away and he says, I'll never turn to the dark side. I'm a Jedi like my father before me. And to me, this is the moment where Luke Skywalker becomes to me the hero of time. Sorry, Link. (laughs) Because this is the moment where Luke could have all the power and he chooses not to because he knows it will destroy him. Whereas he would rather stick to... Like, he'd rather sacrifice himself as a Jedi than live on as a Sith, basically, at that moment. And again, I will reiterate (laughs) we are recording this before episode nine comes out (laughs) so if there are some drastic changes to the star wars lore as per rise of skywalker that makes this seem uh, a silly interpretation i would just point out that again we're using this original trilogy as its own self-contained story right as if there weren't any other movies kind of thing and i just love that then he like sacrifices himself Instead of killing Vader, Emperor starts to kill him, but he calls for help. And so, to me, this is the deepest archetype I've ever come across in the world. Uh, it's like the archetype of the archetypes. And Luke, and it's this, Luke can only win when he faces the evil in himself to recognize it and not be devoured by it in a weak moment. It's in. It's why Alexander Sol- Solzhenitsyn talked about how the first person to hold accountable for the tragedy of the gulag was himself because of the part of him that could be capable of doing this to others. It's the part of evil that lives in your own heart and who wants to cut out a piece of their own heart kind of thing, right? It's also the deepest archetype in Harry Potter in Deathly Hallows 
um, one of the Horcruxes is in Harry. So, you know, less figurative sense even, part of the evil Harry's fighting is inside of himself. And it's only when you're able to pay attention to that archetypal fact, I think, about the human condition, do you even have a chance of defeating it or rising above it or being able to be someone worthy to confront others because you've paid enough attention to that darkness in yourself first. Well, and there's that scene where he throws the lightsaber away and he's like, you know, I'm a... And then the Emperor looks at him and says, then you will die, Jedi. But he, even the Emperor, is forced to affirm that Luke is now, in fact, a Jedi. Yes. That moment of choice, that moment of rejecting the dark side is the moment that he becomes a Jedi. And I think that is that's such a powerful line, you know, where even your enemies, like, what has he wanted ever since he found out about the Jedi? Right. Like, to be one. To be one. Mm-hmm. And then that moment. Where who, his worst enemy sees it in him. Yes, exactly. Even your worst enemy has to look at you and say, you, you've you striven to be this thing. And I mean, in the case of this, it's a rather stark binary, but it's still, you've striven to be this thing and you become it. Yeah. Right? And I don't think it matters that the Emperor is like a little bit sarcastic. No, about I don't, it. No, I right. don't think so either. Because like... Because he even, recognizes his choice. Exactly. Exactly. Even even the, your enemy is forced to recognize your choice when you make some do something that profound. Right. confront your own evil. And... I think it's the deepest archetype and I think why it's so powerful in the way it's presented in Star Wars is that, again, if you watch Star Wars with fresh eyes, there's no reason to think that Luke wouldn't go to the dark side. Like he's got enough hangups in his personality. He's angry enough. I mean, the scene just before that, he is wailing on Vader, right? Like he's wailing on Vader and he cuts his arm off and he's like, he just, he fucked him up. Like he won because of his anger. Yeah, right? yeah, that was because it, it was Vader prompted that anger with threatening Leia, kind of thing. Yeah, it was his pushing himself into the dark side that and actually did it. So we've had two and seven eighths movies of will he or won't he dark side Luke. We have this really intense scene where Luke shows all this anger, and so all this build up for Luke to still make that choice to not do it, which is why he's the deepest hero to me is that he has the somehow somehow he's listened enough to Yoda and he's listened enough to Obi-Wan and he's got enough goodness in him that it can win you know his his 51% good is able to pull off the upset or become that just tipping the and and he chooses not to and I think that that kind of the fact that it's a choice and it's a choice after reflection of the darkness that he knows is in him if he lets it is why i honestly consider the throne room scene in return of the jedi to be one of the most important moments in movie history because of how deep of the archetype goes there yeah Dum 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 dum. Yes, I think I like I said at the start, my first and lasting memory of Star Wars is uh, when the Empire boards the Tantive Four, and they blow up the door, 
and the smoke and, you know, the stormtroopers coming through. And I'm like, oh, this is all white. <laughs> Everything is white. And then you just see through the smoke, Vader come walking through like he owns the place, right? Like, you know, he's the boss. And you immediately know this is the person you need to be the most scared of. You know, like he's just, he takes over the place with his uh, presence. And like, like, I mean, I like more sophisticated movies that gradually you start to see a villainy but as a kid there's it's just there's something intoxicating and exciting about just like boom here's your villain and you know it they don't even have to say anything you just know it's not like this is a villain seemingly without many flaws right like his flaw is that he's evil but other than that he's powerful like he doesn't have a lot of weaknesses like you're not going to take this guy out easily. <laughs> yeah, like his, it seems like his biggest flaw is his inability to not be sarcastic with his underlings. <laughs> yes, yes. Right? But I like there's in A New Hope, he's a menacing presence in A New Hope. He doesn't really come to flourish until Empire and Jedi, but I love how at the beginning he chokes Captain Antilles literally because it's just hilarious foreshadowing for what he does, right? <laughs> and... um He's got this line. He's as clumsy as it is stupid. So it's like his intense frustration with incompetent underlings. And this is when Admiral Ozel comes out of hyperspace. And I just felt like, <laughs> man, this <laughs> Vader is, in a way, Vader is kind of like, he must be like a manager's person they empathize with the most right <laughs> yeah he's dealing with all these it's just all these stormtroopers that can't hit anything with their <laughs> yeah. with their shots and these people who can't build a death star in time <laughs> like they're way behind schedule they come out of high the like, admirals come out of hyperspace too close to the enemy you know Ca- uh, captain nita can't even find a single corellian cruiser you know can't find the millennium falcon it's just like there has to, in another universe, there just has to be a Darth Vader like smacking his head, being like, "Where can you can't even get good help anymore?" <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. And there's there's something funny in in his annoyance with <laughs> you know everyone else in the Empire. <laughs> but on a deeper note, only your hatred can destroy me. And he says this to Luke, and so this made me think of like evil knows how to corrupt, and we see this a lot more with Sidious. And how hatred is the path to the dark side, but Darth Vader knowing how to corrupt, because obviously, as we learned at the prequels, he was corrupted in a similar manner, um, tapping into people's fears. I can't remember it, but it's like fear leads to anger, anger, anger leads, leads to, to hatred, hate, hate, hates to... to the dark side. Potentially not a terrible meditation on <laughs> the political climate in the world right now. <laughs> Yeah, fear leads to anger, anger fear leads to hate, hate leads to the dark, dark side. side, right? But Vader has that line to Luke when they're fighting, only your hatred can destroy me. So that's like, you, well, you, Vader's tempting Luke. And he's also like, he's tempting Luke with exactly what Luke wants, supposedly, mm-hmm. right? And also I think it's obvious that, that uh, the dark side plays off of the loyalties and uh, passions of the people involved. Like, with Luke, it's his love for Leia. That's a, eventually what almost consumes him with the hate needed to kill Vader. Yeah. And, like, I think, I like to think that the whole point here, I don't know whether Vader wanted to be killed by Luke, but obviously the Emperor wanted Luke to kill Vader. And I think the big thing that would have happened was he would have then killed his father and would he ever been able to get over that guilt? Because Luke seems to, like, 
he's just like, I can't kill him. He's my father. I can't, you know, there's some good in him. Like, these are the ideas that are consuming Luke. And so if he does kill him, he's not killing Vader at that point. He's killing his dad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I also, yeah, it's just this, it's a, such an interesting thought to, to, to like, it's kind of like a bully, but it's also when you know the weak spot in your opponent and how to make it grow without them really realizing it, right? To like, Vader knows that the only way to get Luke onto the dark side is to grow his hatred. And yeah, it's not really explored like, are there going to be three Sith, <laughs> right? Like Vader has to kind of know he's getting replaced. Maybe I wonder if that plays. Well, into he also some of his offers to future. Luke, but he also offers to Luke say, "Together we'll kill the Emperor, and then we'll rule the galaxy as father and son." Right. Yeah, he does say that. So in... I, I think Vader seems to have a, a clear knowledge that there can only be two. <laughs> yeah, and and Vader doesn't. I guess Vader's not very satisfied with his job. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, he wants to be number one. It's well, and I mean, he says to Obi Wan in A New Hope. When we last met, I was but a student, but now I am the master. Like it's what he wants, right? Yes. Like there's an element of Vader that wants to be in charge. He doesn't. He doesn't want to be the apprentice to the Emperor anymore. No, and I mean, who would? The Emperor's an asshole. He's <laughs> um, got us his Force lightning. <laughs> what I also liked in that for- lightsaber battle on in the Cloud City too is that he's kind of toying with Luke. Like he's kind of keeping it even to see what Luke can do, and then just brings it all to him. And and that's like an interesting way of like someone with. Who's, who's savvy to the form of excellence being pursued in, in this case, lightsaber fighting, not overpowering someone right away to see what they can do just so you get more information. Yeah, yeah. And he and he does like immediately seem to care about Luke. Mm-hmm. He, he wants Luke to be preserved. He's not interested in just killing Luke. Right. And like initially the Emperor is like, go kill Luke. And yeah. he's like, oh, wait, we can like, we can get him on our side. He would be a powerful he would be ally. A, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so like there are these kind of way upstream little tidbits in retrospect of Vader himself being a little bit uncertain of what he wants out of all of this, right? Which, again, given the end of Return of the Jedi, just makes the payoff all the bigger because of all the little hints we've gotten beforehand. I think if it was a movie where (laughs) for all three movies, Vader's just like, ah, we gotta, if it's just like a chase movie, and they don't meet till the end. And then Vader's like, okay, well, I'll save you. It wouldn't be, there would be no payoff emotionally, as opposed to all of the ways that they interact and then don't, and then their uncertainty of their feelings, and then a decision at the end, right? Now, this is something that I thought was really interesting. His great line, he's, he says, I am your father. No, it's impossible. And then, it is your destiny. And so I said, trapped in a family plan, and one that is said of him. Um, part of the beauty of this story is how that is usurped by choice, both his and Luke's, right? The ch- it's actually the choices that Luke and Vader make that they, I mean, I know, they choose their own destiny, if you will, <laughs> playing a little bit cute with that word. They avoid, like in this scenario, it seems more like Vader is using destiny in the term that's more synonymous with fatalism. Like it is your fate to be, a Sith with me. And I think that that is about as hopeless as it gets. It's like a, it's like a trough of in like 
emotionally, it's Vader's trough, where he is at his worst representing a hopelessness, which is the opposite of what Luke presumably represents as a new hope. It's the opposite of that. It's that your grandfather, not your grandfather, because spoilers, Anakin didn't have a dad. <laughs> what? <laughs> he um, was conceived but like, with the if you think about it in, in, you know, people's lineages, like your grandfather did this job. I did this job. You'll do this job. This is your lot in life kind of thing. Like the, 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 that there's a, once you know that maybe you can expand your horizons, what is more hopeless than fatalism? Yeah. And what, what is more, soul destroying i guess than fatalism like you might think you have a better option but you never will and you're back in the rut forever what do you think about that and that's that's made all the worse if you ever breathe a, uh, an iota of air of something other than that if you had always been in that rut forever that's a, that's a different that's still bad but that's one thing but luke has potentially seen something greater and vader says no this is your destiny to be in the gutter with me, as it were, from the yeah, yeah. This is this is your fate because like I went to the dark side. Yeah, you're gonna go to the dark side, projecting his own <laughs> insecurities <laughs> onto Luke. You might say. Yeah, no, that's a really good point because a lot of people can feel like they're kind of faded into whatever their parents did or thought or were. Let's take alcoholism for example, right? Like, oh my my dad was an alcoholic, and you know I'm an alcoholic, and not not being able to break the cycle. Right and and be like oh that's just who I am right mm-hmm. Where, and, removes choice yeah removes. entirely from the scenario yeah, yeah you're not able to you're not able to overcome nothing what's because, less empowering than that yeah it's genetic right yeah. that kind of thing right whereas the story of Star Wars is is quite the opposite which is that you can do something mm-hmm. you you can overcome the evil in you like you said the the ultimate archetype archetypical hero is Luke because in that moment he sees his hand and he sees he's already being corrupted by his impulsive hatred. Mm -hmm. Like he he lost his hand because he impulsively went because he hated Vader and fought him. And then he looks at his father who's entirely this robotic covered in armor, unable to, he's more machine now than man. (laughs) Exactly. That's the path that making the same decisions that my dad did will take me down. Mm hmm. And I just, it's, it just feels almost a little heartbreaking from Vader's perspective that Vader is projecting this onto Luke. Maybe, maybe Vader needs reason, to believe that. Yeah. Right. Because you think about the people that had to die and the people that Vader had to kill all of his, well, I mean, we're going to the prequels. Well, now, I would but. say, oh, well, we'll get to it in a second, but the very last parts with Vader are his redemption from this kind of hopelessness yes. that I think, right? Yes. With Vader into Return of the Jedi, <laughs> I love. Like, I um, yeah, I would want, I would want to go see a Darth Vader Movie. comic stand-up comedy set. I would love <laughs> to see it where he's like, he goes to the second Death Star and he's talking to the commander there, Commander Jerjarod. <laughs> which I only ever. There's so many names in the original trilogy you only ever learn once the internet comes out. Yeah, because <laughs> they never mention yeah. the film when he tells Jerjarod that the Emperor is coming and so he wants to make sure it's completed on time and Jerjarod says uh, we will d- double our efforts or redouble them or something right <laughs> like we're gonna get it done and Vader says that's good the Emperor is not as forgiving as I am 
<laughs> and it's like, so, this oh, coming yeah, from the you're guy, a pretty forgiving man. Yeah, from the guy who's just spent the last two movies killing everyone around him. <laughs> like anyone who fails. Yeah. And so like his, like it's so droll, right? It's some great droll comedy. But as we start to see in Return of the Jedi, Vader is pulled to Luke like Luke is pulled to him, right? There's a, there's a... Magnetism? Yeah, magnetism. Yeah, like they're... It's not just one way anymore. He also has a longing for Luke. And there's the there's a scene. It's the scene where they're flying to the forest moon of Endor. And they're in the ship. And they have the old code to give to them. And Luke's like, Vader's on that ship. And Han and Leia are like, no, he's not. You're just being, you know, uh, what I can't remember the word they use. You're being panicky or something. And But Vader knows it, right? Vader does feel him there. But what he does is he says... um. He'll deal with Luke himself even when he should let his soldiers do it. And it, to me, that's like his mind's not made up yet. He's not totally sure of what he wants to do. So he's going to – it's like part of his inner conflict is that he's going to deal with it himself as opposed to like, oh, if you thought <laughs> these were rebels who are going to do something terrible and Luke Skywalker's one and you really wanted to get him – You'd obviously go get them right now. Yeah, just take out the ship right, right. now. Yeah, right? Like, like, okay, get, boom, here, Mondrelings, get them, bring them to me at least, right? But he doesn't. And I think that betrays a conflict in him still that you see in the passiveness of his face when he doesn't talk or he pauses longer than normal. And so then in the scene where Luke and Vader are hanging out in the launch pad area after Luke has given himself up on Andor and he says, Anakin Skywalker, I think. And... Vader says, that name no longer has any meaning to me. And this is like really, other than his annoyance with people in A New Hope, this is like the only time where there's like a raised voice and anger in Vader's voice. And so I thought, man, this is a pricks of, these are the pricks of a bad conscience, you know, and just in comparison to his calm before, like earlier Vader would be like, who's that? Or that name has no meaning to me, right? But he gets like, you can tell that Luke's getting... <laughs> I would say under his skin, but under <laughs> un- his under his, his armor, <laughs> yeah, under under his uh, wiring, <laughs> maybe a little bit, right? And it's too late for me, son. Just sadness, right? And so all of those scenes with Vader leading up to the final confrontation are the beginning of Vader's cracks in the suit, as if you will. That Luke, it's what Luke's already noticing, right? And Maybe that's the good that Luke is seeing, and I right? and I think that it that it's to me more than anything those little tidbits about Vader's mild cracking of the armor is why it's so important to pay attention to the way people talk about things to start noticing the the where their conscience is on that kind of thing, right? The edge of a comment, the tone, the way you say it, how you react, all of these things play into understanding what's going on in someone's mind. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that's, that's social awareness too, right? Like, how are you supposed to understand if someone's going through a hard time or if you're just not paying attention to these things? Uh, it's like you said, leaders that need to pay attention to details. And it's obvious that in this instance, Luke is paying attention to the to the very small details. He's like, there's some good in him. Like he, he's not pure evil. And like, no one really believes him. Mm-hmm. But he sees it, and I don't think it's just because he's. Del- it isn't obviously just because he's delusional, because we see that, you know, there's payoff for what he believes. Yeah. But, but it is paying attention to those little details that gives 
Luke the ability to believe what he's and probably you know trusting his feelings but because everyone else thinks Vader's just too far gone obviously I mean Vader's done terrible things <laughs> really so, really terrible things yeah like come to think of it like, why would you ever but somehow Luke is the one who sees this <laughs> you know he has to like almost convince doesn't he when he talks to Obi-Wan does he say there's good in him I or is he, I guess he probably just says that to Leia yeah, no, I mean, because I think it's pretty obvious at one point that, that Yoda is basically like, you you have to go confront Vader. Yeah. And I don't think it's, I think Yoda knows what's what's going on here. Mm-hmm. Like, if the Emperor, Emperor foresees the dark side path, then I think probably Yoda foresees the light side path. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good assumption to make <laughs> in Star Wars. So as we move into the throne room scene from Vader's perspective, which is as equally interesting to me, for the first time ever... I noticed something in Vader's behavior that I think it's because I'm taking on my theory of Luke re- eventually like getting redeemed in that end scene like we talked about. I think he kind of saves Luke from completing his hatred by not letting him kill the Emperor when the Emperor tells him to. You know, when the Emperor says, take your weapon, give in to your hatred, strike me down. And Luke was going to, but Vader stopped him. So at True. least, oh, at least symbolically, Vader saves Luke in that instance from giving into his hatred, or like he say, Vader saves Luke from having to live with the consequence of giving into his hatred by actually stopping him from killing the Emperor in that exact moment, in that exact way. Whereas, I guess, from the Emperor's perspective, he just assumes that Vader's going to do that because Vader is his loyal servant or whatever. Yeah, like, and and you know, he just. He just assumes that. But, like, frankly, Vader could have let him do that and then ruled the galaxy with Luke. Yep. Right? But I think part of the incredible (laughs) mind-blowery of Star Wars is that if Luke had killed the Emperor like that, he would have been on the dark side. Not because the Emperor was good and not shouldn't have been killed, but it's because Luke would have been doing it out of hatred in that moment because he was hating the way that the Emperor had tricked him. He was hating how his friends were going to get killed because of his own ignorance and the Emperor had foreseen everything. And it was hatred was the prime motivator. And so in his... And revenge. And revenge. And in his so in his desire to save the Emperor, Vader also kind of saves Luke, which is, I think, kind of beautiful. There's a weird kind of breaking bad scenario there between luke and vader in that they both well they're enemies of each other but they both kind of save each other a couple times you know when breaking bad the only time walter and jesse ever seem to be getting along is when they're saving each other's lives yeah yeah, yeah <laughs> you know true uh, whereas i just think given the interpretation i'm giving luke couldn't have been redeemed without vader stopping his lightsaber in that moment and maybe, like, if we pull that out to... I wonder a, what Vader thought about that, you know? Yeah. Well, maybe he was, he was probably just thinking, oh, I got to save the Emperor, but... But I would like to think that maybe there's an interpretation where Vader is seeing, no, if you do it this way, you are giving into your hatred. And even though that's what I've said, it's not what I want, because right, we're Right, because we, we do see that tension in yeah. there, yeah. That is a really profound point, and I think it also goes to show that it goes back to uh, Lord of the Rings and Gollum and pity, right? Where it's like, you never know what your enemy, what what role your enemy will play in your own redemption, in a sense. Yeah. Like, if you look at the, and, and, the, and the redemption being what you expressed earlier, redemption from your own evil. 
Right. Right. From choosing good over the demons that plague you, right? The hatred that plagues you, the anger that plagues you. And while, you know, while we know that Luke obviously has different feelings towards Vader now on a larger scale, we see that if, it, like you said, if it wasn't for Vader doing that in that moment, he would have gone to the dark side. Yeah. And because he saves him there, or, you know, in this way, Vader saves Luke. When Vader, he's still not sure, he uses Leia, uses Luke's weakness with Leia to destroy him. And there's that great shot of Luke's face, half light, half dark. Just fucking beautiful for what's happening symbolically in that scene. And Luke's chaos and his fury coming out and Luke about to kill Vader and Vader like, right? Like he's got the more whooping style of his breathing going on. And in that moment, like I'm, I'm imagining all of this from Vader's point of view, Vader's uncertainty kind of of everything and the conflict within him that Luke has been noticing to then be on the ground, dead to rights, arm cut off. Luke, Luke, your son has beaten you and your son is about to kill you. And your son turns around to your master, the most evil entity in the universe, and says, no, I won't do it. I'm a Jedi Knight like him. And so you can, uh, well, essentially Luke's like, you can kill me, but I'm not going to do it. And what Vader must have, he ends up choosing Luke because of all of these things. And when he says at the end, uh, when he has his mask off, and he says, you were right about me, Luke. And his last kind of his last reflection in his life is one of humility right true his last one is you were right not me and i love all of that symbolism but also the kind of like at a obviously in star wars this is all really high stakes but the lower stake version of all of the little ways that we help each other to maybe right now <laughs> You're giving into your hatred. I'll stop your lightsaber from killing something you shouldn't, right? In whatever way that is a metaphor for whatever's happening in your life. But then maybe you'll save me. Maybe I'll save you. All these little ways, you know? Yeah. For all of the little evils that come our way along the journey. <laughs> well, it's like I love how every everything that – and Star Wars is really good at this. The little things that, that, that Luke does, the little things that Vader does, the little things – it's always these little things that come together in a, a web of plot driving narrative, but it's also the impact they have on, and it's pretty in your face when, when it comes to, to solo, but even then it's the little things that soften him to Leia and then make him love Leia. But then he's still got this uh, nobility, the, the, you know, the rapscallion nobility of saying when she's like, Oh, I love Luke. He's like, okay. Well then, I'll just leave. That's fine, you know. <laughs> yeah. He doesn't like. Oh well, fuck Luke. <laughs> yeah. He's like, okay, you know, fine. <laughs> yeah. And I guess what I'm trying to say is, I think that's one of the truest truisms out there that the that we don't know the impact that we're having on other people, right? The things we're doing and saying. But if we act in nobility, if we act in goodness, if we act, you know, towards the light side, yeah. Then who knows? Like you could turn, where that's going to help down could, the line. You could turn the, an evil person away from it, right? Like, and yeah. that's so hopeful. And like you said, Luke is 
realistically optimistic. Yeah. Right. And and it's, I mean, it's so. Every time I think I've reached the depth of Luke Skywalker, I I feel like there's a new thing, and it's, you know, not only is Luke able to overcome the evil in himself by paying attention to it, but he's also able to bring out the small good invader by paying attention to it. It's like acknowledging these things, you know, there's the there's the little bit of evil in Luke that could win, but by looking at it, he's able to overcome it. And then there's the little bit of good invader that it, by looking at it, he's able to pull it out from the depths to come up to the top because of like he was willing to sacrifice himself to save Luke because Luke did for him. And I mean, the emperor's walking down the stairs clapping as if like, oh good, you've killed Vader. Now you can be my apprentice. And Vader has to also be noticing that. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Yeah. How he's going to be so easily replaced in the eyes of his boss. And all of those little things, how it just takes one person to believe in you, I guess. No one believes in Vader except Luke. And Luke could beat him and chooses not to you know so that's his depth and vader's they're intertwined and it's just so beautiful to me yeah anyway that gets us through two of the characters so far in star (laughs) wars i want to talk now about the role played by obi-wan and yoda in the story in a new hope first thing obi-wan says well, I don't know if it's the exact first thing, but it's right up there. It's, Come here, my little friend. Don't be afraid to R2. And you're like immediately like, oh, okay, this is a good guy who's our friend, who's on our team because he's kind, right? And I just was like, the initiation of kindness to a new person or, you know, a new droid, I guess, or a new scenario is irreplaceable. To just lead with kindness makes, it just opens all the doors of the world to you, I think. And I and I love that. I think kindness is a higher order virtue in a sense that it has nothing to do with survival and can actually hurt your chances of survival on a, on a purely evolutionary standpoint. But like that's what it means to be human, mm-hmm. right? And the people who have the strength to be kind, I think this is the way I would put it. The people who have the strength to be kind have already shown shown their um their character because you know historically and you know philosophically the strong dominate the weak right but when the strong can be kind to the weak can show mercy like there's that is a higher order virtue let the weak sit at the table with them as equals exactly i think i think that is a testament to uh maybe an enlightenment um idea which is the like it, it is a higher uh, plane of understanding mm-hmm. where you're like, well, it doesn't like it's not about you know the struggle for survival, right? It's about something beyond that, whatever that might be. And I guess in yeah. the case of Star Wars, it's the Force. In the case of whatever, but there is something meaningful or meaningful about uh, a being that's able to be kind. And I, what I like about it is it's such a good. Uh, contrast to Vader, who's mm-hmm. not even kind to his own underlings, let alone <laughs> yeah. anyone else. Yeah, let alone some robot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's all the more powerful when you see like where Obi-Wan eventually, like you see how long of a life he's lived, what he's done, how powerful he is, what he's gone through, what he's seen, who he's defeated. And through all of that, he maintains a kindness, which again is like 
maybe my favorite attribute in a person is just unprompted kindness is as attractive to me as anything is the most attractive thing in a person. And now he's got a great line in, I guess it's his house when he's hanging out with Luke and he says, I was once a Jedi Knight, just like your father. And so I thought about how that it's so cool to see like taking pride in the things of your culture that have grandeur right now, again, forget prequels, forget bickering and infighting and potential corruption of the Jedi Knights <laughs> from the prequels. <laughs> like, that's not the point. The point is, imagine watching this for the first time, having no other videos and being like, I was once a Jedi Knight, just like your father. And there are things in every single culture's past that are so wonderful and worth uh, revivifying every now and again to the world. Not to, not to like be domineering about, but just to show pride in and like here this thing that we did is good for the world. Here's why. And I'm proud of that. You know, it would be an example in of something you feel that way about, uh, your past or, or um, what, what is one of the legends? That uh, honestly, reading? for me, it's philosophy. It would be philosophy. It would be the thread of Socrates, Aristotle, Augustine through to Spinoza, Hume, Locke, Paine, all of the people who have thought to make our lives better, to, to understand our condition better. That will, uh, Western philosophy and Eastern philosophy too, though I'm not as well versed in it, most of the things I've read are just as arresting because they are meditating on the human experience as well. But just philosophy, I think, would be my Jedi Knight pride thing the ability to think beyond your circumstance is my favorite thing from the past of my culture i like that how about you i think for me it's the explorers like the uh the human desire to push the boundaries of what's possible right both physically and i guess mentally too because i mean philosophy is a form of exploration and i but i just i'm just so inspired by the people who have gone before us who have taken seemingly impossible things. One of the examples I like to use the most is Wi-Fi, even though it's it's rather modern. Sure. It's it seems like pure magic to me. Like it it is completely mind boggling to me <laughs> that you can you can transport videos, pictures, inf- you can transport information through the air. <laughs> Into another person's hand, yeah, like it—it's magic. Like there's that—I I forget who says it, but there's a great line like technology beyond a certain point is indistinguishable from magic. Yeah, and I feel like I'm living in a time where magic's happening all around, and everyone's just like, "Oh man, you don't have service." Like, <laughs> yeah, and I love that level of exploration. Do you think that helps because we remember dial-up? Probably. Yeah. No, I mean, <laughs> we didn't have Wi-Fi, yeah. and it's very weird. But no, I, I think the human ability to to imagine something and then to create it and then to perfect it yeah. is probably something that, that uh, I, I think should be revered. I, I If it's not too self-congratulatory, I would say that those are both really good picks. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> nice. I like them. I like that too. Yeah. So then that brings us into the idea of the force. And... I, you know, obviously I adore the Force. I think it's great for the overarching 
little meta-ness of the story. But I was thinking about it a little bit more this time and because the, the force is the energy of all living things, right? The force is created by all living things. And so it's a tip of the hat to life, to living, uh, things that are alive. And to me, this is like part of the most important and mysterious part of Star Wars is that this is a part that is literally life-affirming. Like it's literally what Star Wars is saying in this uh, moment and in a few other moments is that the vitality of life is more powerful than anything that it gives the force, which is what Jedis use to maintain balance and et cetera, right? But it's not like, well, Jedis contribute to the force because they're alive, but it's not like they create the force. The force is existent before them and they tap into it and it's there because of things that are alive. So it's a, it's a subtle love letter to the vitality of living the for the force is a love letter to life and i am floored by that idea and even to some extent the dark side is Mm -hmm. uh, an affirmation of life because the dark side and the light side if force is you know if as obi-wan kenobi says if the force is created by all living beings and the interaction between all living beings then the dark side is like the force is interesting because it needs to stay in balance, right? It's not all about good and all about evil. It's the tension between the tension the two. between those two things, the tension in yourself. You can go either way because you can live your life either way. Like life can either be destructive and broken and painful and, 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 and suffering inducing and in, on the things around it. That, that is an aspect of life that is, you can't suffer if you're not alive, right? You can't, you can't hate, you can't fear, you can't... None of those things are possible without life. And I, I, I agree, I, I love that, because it is even that is saying, really, you have an option. You yeah. have a choice of how you're going to go about doing this whole living thing. And one of them is to, is to affirm the love and the connection and the... But it's uh, all part of it. But it's all part of it. And it's just, you, like, both are there. Both are in... Balance, right. but which way are you going to go? Yeah, and and when he says the force will be with you always, I just think like the vitality of life is ever present if you look for it, right? Like again, <laughs> the life force, this thing that the most celebrated overarching thing in the Star Wars universe is the thing that comes from getting into the world through your energies and your thoughts and your ability to be alive and to interact with others. And I think that's another reason why Star Wars goes so deep down into our subconsciouses and unconsciouses and plays with us in such a way that we don't ever want it to stop, you know, because it's, it's, there's a grandeur to that too, that is so inspiring. And I mean, the Force keeps Obi-Wan in touch with the suffering of others, right? If you think about Alderaan, he feels when Alderaan is destroyed. And I love how that connection part is there with life. Like, when you start to feel life forces, like, you, re- like if your uh, baseline is life, then petty differences are irrelevant. And they become more and more irrelevant, right? And that's what Obi-Wan is kind of trying to teach in A New Hope. He's trying to teach Luke that way, you know? And I just, I like that life force take and it's how 
the most important part of Star Wars in its own lore is life. Again, the first Force Ghost with Obi Wan, your your loving past is still with you, <laughs> and, and and often in your saddest or direst moments, like Dagobah is. Now, obviously, Obi Wan is giving him an instruction, but it's still like when Luke needed Obi Wan the most, his remembrance came back, and that's a really nice motif as well, you know? Yeah, yeah. And so then, when we're first introduced to Yoda, <laughs> this is like for such a depressing movie. There are so many hilarious moments in empire strikes back uh and so yoda presents himself as silly and goofy to see what luke really is like to see how he acts around someone who stands to do nothing for him well silly goofy and helpless yes like he, he comes across as just as little old nobody but it's all calculated yeah because yeah. he knows who luke is and he wants to see what luke's made of first impression if yoda stands to be someone who can't help luke right and Luke obviously is like dismissive and annoyed and frustrated with the way he's um, playing. Though I have to say, the scene with Yoda and R two D two is like unbelievably funny. How this like little puppet and this droid are fighting over this little lamp, and Yoda starts hitting him with his staff. Like I, every time that's I, and I always I, I start laughing before the scene happens because I know it's coming. Right. Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's like. The perfect contrast between Goofy Yoda and R2-D2 is just comedy perfected, you know? But I do like this um, this idea of presenting yourself as much less able than you are to see what um, another person's motivation is. Yeah, yeah. Because it's part of teaching as well. Like, if Luke were able to pay attention, Yoda's also teaching him something And this there. is also common in a lot of stories, right? Where the hero or, or the mentor will disguise himself to see what's kind of going on, right? Yeah. To, to infiltrate and, and kind of spy on people. Uh, this is an old, old motif in general. But I think, like, Yoda always seems to be kind of a little bit he's got a smirk underneath it all like yeah as if he knows something that the rest of the world doesn't know he's wised up to everything yeah. a little bit and <laughs> yeah. always a little bit jokey or like a little tongue-in-cheek and a little bit self-aware of everything that's going on yeah yeah so there's just some great lines yoda has clear your mind of questions so the force is kind of like meditation so i like that too like the meditate on the force kind of thing but then he's got a great line size matters not and I just wrote, thank God. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> thank God for oh, that. Oh, Luke. <laughs> it's, well, it's straight from Yoda. I mean, it's from, it's the, you straight know, from the from trilogy Yoda. itself. <laughs> yeah. You have, to, you have to understand. You have to respect that. Efficacy at that point. <laughs> but his, probably his best line, Yoda's best line in all of Star Wars is when he's, you know, at peak frustration. <laughs> Luminous beings are we, not this crude matter. And life always being worth it because of the, that spark in us, regardless of the suffering. And that's the vitality of Star Wars, is that life is worth it, regardless of the suffering, because of the luminosity available to come out of us, if we can dig deep enough to find it. Yoda, again, like you mentioned before, you must confront Vader, but that he's really confronting himself, which is, again, Yoda is just the grandmaster of this. Pass on what you have learned. And I just wrote the great, beautiful human project. <laughs> yeah. So to me, yeah. part of the point of life, I don't know if I've mentioned this before on the podcast, but part of the point of life is to be a good ancestor, to pass on to the next generation, a, well, <laughs> as best as possible, a slightly better world. And I know that the news is always saying that that's not what we're doing. <laughs> but it, but, it, but yeah. I think that there's something good about 
improvements that have been made and just how we are helping young people hopefully learn new things like it's a great human project is to pass on what you've learned to someone else you know and then uh, the last part is obi-wan's a certain point of view so i wanted to know what do you think about obi-wan's uh, uh yeah. you said vader killed my father well, when I was well, uh, what I said was true from a certain point of view. Like again, this is this is one of the parts of Star Wars where I'm ambivalent about. I don't really know what to think about it. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that if you were to live out that idea of well, it's a certain point of view. Like maybe you weren't ready for this information that people would be as uh, gracious necessarily. I mean, if you're a force ghost, I guess it's a little bit different. But I, I I can't get over the fact that it seems like he's lying. I know, like and yes. and that it's a straight up lie, and he's he's making an excuse and and i i don't think i don't think that's a moral way of living to be honest like no i mean if he didn't want luke to know that vader was his father he could have just not told him what happened yeah he could just well he could have also well it would have been a lie but he could have said i don't know yeah i guess i i think yeah i mean obviously the way it came out the way it the reason this is the way it came out is because it's a way better story. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this yeah, way, the right? Service of the plot, right? Um, maybe you could say maybe Obi Wan was clairvoyant enough to know that unless Luke learned it from Vader, it wasn't going to impact him in the same way. Um, that like it was part of his growth as needed. I mean, uh, again, I don't. How clairvoyant is Obi Wan? It doesn't matter, I guess, but. It just feels a little bit like I guess that information li- could have helped I guess it's Luke. Weird. <laughs> Lying doesn't lead to the dark side. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> anger leads to hatred. Hatred leads to the dark side. But lying doesn't lead no, to no, anger. No, no, lying's fine. You can just, you know, be deceptive. All well, the time. again, I mean, Obi Wan swims in the uh, vagueness of it, which this is interesting because my opinion of Obi Wan is not really diminished, but I think that's because I already liked him. Like I right, wonder like if, if he didn't did, like him. Yeah, if I didn't like Obi-Wan, this might be something I'd hold against him harder, which again is, you know, cogn- a cognitive bias that probably affects everybody. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I, I agree. It's it's it was always a uh a part of the movie that bothered me even as a kid. I'm like, "Ah, oh, well, you know." Yeah. Yeah. So maybe maybe it's nothing's perfect and we have to live with this big huge lie that Obi-Wan told to Luke. Yeah. You know, and and yeah. and because it serviced the plot and the motif better. Yeah. You know. <laughs> I guess we just had to live with it. <laughs> well, as my dad would say, never let the facts get in the way of a good story. <laughs> <laughs> true, true. And Obi-Wan certainly didn't. So that now brings us to our uh favorite scoundrel, <laughs> Mr. <laughs> Han Solo, and our favorite princess, Miss Leia. So Han we we meet him in the cantina. He's a little bit gruff, but he's interesting. But I think we really get the first taste of his character at a really interesting flavor when he kills Greedo, right? Now, Han shot, first. shot first. Han <laughs> shot first. Oh, I should also mention, we at, not only have we watched the original trilogy, we watched the original releases of the original trilogy. So we watched the 1977 version of A New Hope, the 1980 version of Empire Strikes Back, and the 1983 version of Return of the Jedi. So we got all original all the way across the board, right? None of those weird remake things that George <laughs> Lucas did. <laughs> you could definitely tell with the graphics as well. Some oh, yeah. Well, and even were... just the film. Yeah. Like the way that the the not even the graphics, but just the actual filming of the physical sets was grainier yes. yeah. <laughs> than yeah. it is normally, you know? But 
when so Han shot first and he just kills Greedo in in cold not blood. exactly well, well, I guess it's it's kind of in cold blood like he's being about to be taken prisoner so I don't know in lukewarm blood <laughs> I guess <laughs> right right which is uh, <laughs> well I don't think he wasn't he gonna kill him he's like I don't know if he's gonna kill him in the well Greedo it, well Han refused to go and so Greedo said, well, was fine. gonna kill yeah. him or said he was and so you know but. What is interesting to me is that right off the bat, we know that the, that Han is not a safe person, and I think this is important because being not being not a safe person is an interesting component to being able to also be someone who can take on evil, right? Because yes. there's a element of Han Solo that's unpredictable and a little bit, you know, swashbuckling and scoundrelous. Scoundrelous? I've never said that word before, but I think that's a good one. Where it's 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 precisely because of that unpredictability about him that it makes him such a dangerous weapon to use against the empire. And I yeah, think yeah, that's a good we, lead up to because the they can't read him. him, they can't predict him. Yeah. He's yeah, he's kind of a, a loose cannon. And he is the skeptic of this movie. Han Solo is the great skeptic of everything. He's a skeptic of the Force. He's a skeptic of the Jedi. He's the skeptic of the rebellion itself. The rebellion, right? The like he's a yeah. And I think that this is a super useful aspect in a friend and not to be avoided because they the skeptic is someone who will kind of hold your feet to the flames a bit and not not be the flatterer and it's hard because it's so easy to get wrapped up in oh my vision is this and i'm so glad and then the skeptic comes along and kind of douses water and puts or puts water on your flames you know and and i and i just think it's important to actually value that in a person i think that's one of the most valuable qualities to have in a friend as long as you can handle it yes because a lot of people can't but like for myself i tend to be very get very excited about things and be like oh man let's do this this is the best idea luke can't handle it at the start no no, not at all and part of his growth is his ability to understand han's temperament and value it yes exactly exactly because like luke gets excited about and he's like all gung ho for everything, bright eyed, bushy tailed. Yeah, like kid. this is this is great. Let's go and do it. But that and that mentality is good because like it's that energy that propels, I think, ideas forward and propels action and execution is the excitement about doing it and the excitement about the idea itself. But if you don't have people that are critical, you can end up like barreling into like a like a bull into a china shop and yeah. and you've you've completely wrecked everything or you weren't ready for some horrible outcome that could come of your enthusiasm. So yeah, I I think those people are incredibly important. And I think that cynicism comes from seeing the world often for the darker side of it. Yeah. Right, which we we know he's a he's a smuggler, right? He's he's been in kind of the underbelly of society and he knows that it, there's a darkness to the world. Yeah. And you can't really I don't think you can really <laughs> be like a scoundrel and a cynic until you've really seen how He's seen the shit. Yeah, until you've seen the shit. Right. Or as some of my friends, until you know the ash, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, that's a that's a more poetic way to put it, I think. I like that. He's also, I wrote, I, I noticed he's the OG space cowboy. Bring him on. <laughs> he really is. Like, he's, was there anyone like him before? No. Like, he, yeah, he's the OG yeah. space Better cowboy. Better her than me. Oh, I can imagine quite a bit, you know, still the cynic of all this. Like, I can imagine all that money. I'm in it for the money, right? Like this is a new, the whole a new hope is like it's not really like Han Solo is a hero. No, no, <laughs> you know? he doesn't want to be. No, he doesn't want to be a hero, but he's not. So as we go into Empire Strikes Back, 
He's a tough guy with his feelings, but he's not sure how to be vulnerable about them, right? My friend's out in it, so he's got a tough guy attitude to save Luke. It's cold. You're, you're, it's so cold out there on Hoth. My friend's out in it. You'll die out there. Well, then I'll see you in hell. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> <just> <laughs> the hilarity of that. It's like admirable that he wants to save Luke, but he's just so confrontational he's just about, about it. everything. Yeah. You know, and, um, shut him up or shut him down. And so this is something I've noticed that's so funny. So he's all, like, about, of all the great humor in Star Wars, perhaps the greatest is the relationship between Han Solo and C-3PO, where... <laughs> Never tell me the odds. He's annoyed with C-3PO all the time, and all C-3PO is doing is what he's programmed to do, which presumably is supposed to make everyone's life easier. Like, he's a translator. That makes people's lives easier. He knows odds of things that should help in decision-making. And yet, everything that C-3PO is programmed to do, Han Solo either hates him for it or ridicules him for it, right? And I also thought, like, this could be a potential motif on humans' uneasiness with technology and the way that we are a little bit potentially unsure of what to do with things that so radically change our lives, even if it's for the better because of how outside of ourselves it puts us, right? And Han Solo wants none of that. Like, obviously, he adopts technology in his ship and everything. He's got his gun. And, like, like he knows technology and it's important. But I think that his kind of fly-by-the-seat-of-his-pants cowboy attitude is totally at odds with a computer right? <laughs> that yeah. has algorithms yeah. and knows how things work, whereas he's just, you know, spontaneity and chaos. And so it's kind of like they're the most different characters. And, you know, obviously this isn't really explored in Star Wars, but I thought it was an interesting little riff on the uneasiness of the spontaneous life person, or like the spontaneous person with, you know, the drudgery of programs. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. No, that's a good... Like how C-3PO should just be listened to all the time because he's going to save their life all the time but that's not exciting <laughs> and yeah that's all those exciting but also like he's like the most logical thing is to give up to surrender right? yeah and it's like <laughs> yeah, okay <yeah. laughs> maybe maybe you're right on like an odds thing but that that's not a human thing then when he's talking about lando that was a long time ago i'm sure he has forgotten and i wrote this is kind of like the downside of cowboyhood like uh you leave things in your wake <laughs> that potentially <laughs> could come back and haunt yeah, you later yeah right? the recursiveness of life uh, you need to, <laughs> you know, at least if you're going to somewhere where you know that maybe bridges weren't burnt, but they were singed a bit, treading with a bit more caution than <laughs> Han uh, yes, often does. I've, I've lived that out. <laughs> um, so it's in Return of the Jedi, though, where he really surprises Leia by volunteering to lead the Strike Force team to blow up the um, shield generator on, and on the Force Moon of Endor, right? And people can grow and impress. And Han Solo has grown a lot. Twitter even surprises Leia. And and part of that is out of, you know, being tamed by his love for Leia to a degree. Yeah. And like there's that beginning, someone who loves you, right? I mean, if you if you think about it too much, you're like, wait a second, like they're already in love and like, yeah. <laughs> like well, what's again, going on? Not, <laughs> missing the point with a rocket yes, launcher. <laughs> exactly. But like at the end of the day, we see a man who's, you know, Suddenly, yeah, he's got his cowboy ways and he's kind of Peter Panned his way through life. But then it's like, oh, 
commitments are significant. Right. Like and helping people. other people are meaningful. Relationships mm-hmm. matter. Like because he's kind of been relationships don't really matter. Yeah. I just am a, I'm a, I'm gonna run. Uh, obviously, his relationship with Chewy matters, but other than that nothing seems to matter to him. And now suddenly he's building these relationships and they are what are tying him to reality. And, and from Leia's perspective, she's able to be like, oh man, this man is growing <laughs> and changing in yeah. a positive way. Getting and I'm better, yeah. going to be positive about that and reciprocate it in some manner, you know? And then of course though, uh, he's never done being impatient with 3PO, which no. is just like in the Ewok <laughs> village, it's so funny. <laughs> Princess Leia. I recognized your foul stench when I came on board. And this is to Tarkin. And she's not shy. You know, like she comes out of the gate swinging. And I just love that about Leia. How she's just such a... She's kind of um, unpleasant, I guess. But she's ready to fight right out of the gate. And uh, someone's got to save our skins. And, you know, just like as a kid, she's just like looking at her. Like, what a badass, hey? She definitely, yeah. She's like, the badass of everything. She's obviously the most put together. Yeah. The, like she's ready to fight. Ready to risk all mm-hmm. kinds of things. Yeah. Re- really ready to risk everything for the cause. Like, she's yeah. the most committed person in the entire movie to something beyond herself. Yeah. Like, everyone else is about And willing to get her hands dirty to do it. Ready to die. Yeah. And... I just as soon kiss a Wookiee, Han. I can arrange that. This is the perfect couple, right? <laughs> but what I love too is her sensitive side. So when Luke and Han are out in Hoth, Han's trying to find Luke, and they might die because it's so cold out there. Like you just see the sadness in her face and like the worry. And this is what again is so great about how they portrayed Leia as this super badass, can handle anything, and yet wants to love you know has that deep love in her heart i think it was east of eden like there's no strength like a woman with love in her heart yeah you know this is princess leia to a t there's no one stronger than princess leia and i think part of it is because she has love in her heart if she was if she didn't if she was just cold and detached and brittle i don't think she would have the same vitality in her ability to fight for things like she does because she does care about her friends that's interesting you use the word brittle and that just makes me think yeah if if you're just hard and brittle you can't really bend which is yeah it makes means you lack strength because you're not adaptable you don't have your anti-fragile yeah you're not anti-fragile sorry yeah you're not anti-fragile yeah yeah and she's she's demonstrating not that i guess (laughs) Which is why she sticks in our memories so long and so well. Part of it, again, like all of the, everyone in Star Wars is in our memories consciously for all of the excitement and the cool things and the gadgets and the ships and the sounds and et cetera, subconsciously because of the little motifs that they leave us with as they fade away from our TV screens, right? I don't know where you get your delusions, laser brain. (laughs) And to me, this is the satisfaction of a perfect insult. (laughs) There's very little in life better than a perfect insult. I am not a committee. (laughs) (laughs) Saves Han from the carbonite, though, so shows that sensitive I love you side against someone who loves you. This is something I really loved. She bonds with Wicket, the Ewok on Endor when she's shot down. She bonds with Wicket, and this is the beauty of a generous disposition to the other to make a friend, right? So that's a good way to put it. Like, Leia has has a generous disposition. She is nobody's fool she's no slouch but she's definitely willing to extend 
the first hand to and like to wicket the other right she offers him like a piece of food i think or something yeah that she takes off her helmet and he's uh, all freaked out but she's like oh it's just a helmet yeah and then when she says i know back to hans i love you when in front of the bunker it's like perfect symmetry and 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 playfulness right like (laughs) obviously notwithstanding the fact that they're in the middle of a battle I love this little playfulness that she has with Han where when, you know, Empire, when she says, I love you. And he says, I know. And he says, I love you. And she says, I know. Like the, those like little, those little inside jokes that mean so much to people. Yes. That, that keep, keep love alive. The, the little mini energy boosts that keep love alive. But anyway, I did have like a more broad thing for all three of our main characters that I wanted to a riff on for a second, that one of the things to me that is so, the very first thought I had when I thought I wanted to do Star Wars for this podcast is, okay, we have our three, I mean, there's a few, there's obviously main characters, but the three main ones to me are Luke, Han, and Leia. They are our heroes. They are the, you know, Harry, Ron, Hermione of Star Wars, even though uh, they came first. <laughs> <laughs> but perhaps Shots fired, more, shots fired. More, more have one more in their mind than the other. Yeah. What is really interesting to me uh, psychologically about these three is that out of the gate, all three of our heroes are pretty unlikable. That's right? true. That's right? a, That's a good point. Like Luke is a whiny, temperamental adolescent who doesn't seem to... With delusions of grandeur. Yeah, who doesn't seem to see why that would annoy others. <laughs> Han Solo is a, you know, selfish, arrogant scoundrel who's an asshole and a mercenary <laughs> and a like mercenary, a right? mercenary like yeah. and leia is like she's tough but she's also like really verbally unpleasant to everyone around her and kind of ungrateful and pretty when, stuck up yeah stuck up and like <laughs> han and luke have come to save her from death termination and she's just throwing out smart remarks all the time about that it, like a little gratitude Sure, maybe you're in a garbage chute, but at least you're not in jail about to be killed. And let's try and figure this out now. Like, you don't just have to make me... You don't have to belittle us all the time for trying to save and you. And she really right? does belittle, like, Han particularly Quite all a bit, the time. Right? Yeah. So there's there's all of these elements of unlikableness about our heroes. So why are they our heroes? I think they are our heroes because in spite of all their unlikability, when they have a moment of deep choice they show their true colors and their true colors are good so leia's i guess i wouldn't exactly call it even a redemptive moment but her moment of good choice that lets us know that she's at core good is when she doesn't betray her friends when tarkin is said where's your rebel base and she says they're on dantooine but it's a lie they're not on dantooine she hasn't given up the location of her friends, even at the threat of her entire planet being destroyed. Like she is on the hot seat. I mean, it turns out it wouldn't have worked, (laughs) but the base is on Yavin 4, but she doesn't say that. She lies to protect her friends because she, she makes the choice that this rebellion, like these, you guys are so evil. This empire is so evil and you are so immiserating the galaxy that I will risk my entire family and friends and planet being destroyed to not compromise that by letting you know where the rebel base is. 
right? Yeah, like she's a she's a principled person. Yeah, like, in that moment. Yeah, and Han Solo's good choice redemptive moment is when he comes back to save Luke during the trench run in A New Hope, and you know, yeah, let's blow this thing, kid, and go home. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, like yeah. It, imagine again watching Star Wars with fresh eyes. Imagine not knowing what happens in that movie, and the whole movie you're like, wait a minute, like this guy actually he sucks. Just leaves, you're yeah. right? What, what, what's Luke's redemptive? Uh, moment? Well, Luke's redemptive moment is why he's the most interesting character in Star Wars. Is his redemptive moment is the scene we talked about in the throne room, right? Where the he very chooses, end, yeah. where he chooses not to kill Vader. Like we're left, will he or won't he, for the whole time, right? Whereas Leia and Han, we 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 have that subconscious knowledge of their goodness in the first movie like their their deck their deck is already shuffled and we know what's in there luke's is still shuffling we don't know for sure what's going to come out right so that's why it's three full movies basically before luke's which is why he's our main character why he's like in a movie that is kind of in one sense cookie cutter acting (laughs) he's our he's our deepest interesting character because it takes him the whole way for us to learn that he's good and so, because they eventually all, I guess what you call it, the rubber hits the road moment, show to be good rather than evil. That's why there are heroes. That's why there are heroes. And that's why we <laughs> forgive them all of their other character flaws, let's say, or all of their other things that might make them unlikable. <laughs> so imagine you have all of the snarkiness of Han Solo in Empire Strikes Back, but he hadn't come back and saved them. <laughs> Yeah. Right, like Luke's dead, Leia's dead, everyone's dead. We get snarky solo, and we're like, you know, fuck you, dude. Like you could have saved them, you could have helped, and you didn't. But however, because he does come back and he does save them, all of his snarkiness and Empire Strikes Back isn't just acceptable. It's charming and it's funny, and it's because. And I think this is something we do with friends: is that when we see those good things, the things that might otherwise be off-putting are part of why we like them all of a sudden right because yeah it's it's if you like you love someone for their virtues but you like them for their vices once we know that our heroes leia luke han and luke are good in this you know hazy sense of making a good choice at the hardest moment it's kind of um enjoyable even all of the ways that they are unlikable later now maybe it wouldn't be all the time and we're just getting just enough to have it be humorous for us as an audience but i think that there is something thoughtful in george lucas making all three of them human really human human and unlikable until they're good yeah and i think that's cool i don't remember where i read it but i read somewhere that there's kind of a scale when it comes to friendship. Like once you've built up enough goodwill with a person, either through, you know, large acts of self-sacrifice or generosity or any of these things, then they give you a lot more leeway than someone would who, who hasn't, um, who hasn't known you for as long. There's a lot more empathy, a lot more grace given to, like you said, to friends, I like I like that phrase. Uh, you love you love someone for their virtues, but you like them for their vices. Like your really good friends know your vices, and they kind of joke about them with you to some degree. It's like, oh yeah, I figured you were. Well, and they're like kind of part of your personality. Yeah. Even. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like that's who it's part of you your know, operating. system. That's who Luke is, right? <laughs> you know, it's like uh, yeah. And whereas 
a stranger might be like, oh, Luca has all of these. Like, Whereas yeah. someone challenges you on that, though. Like, well, why is that a good thing? Like, why would you like that? You seem to be describing something that would be um, not enjoyable in a person. And it's because you would have, well, okay, yeah, sure, he's a bit of a jerk sometimes. Maybe he seems like he comes he comes across as a little bit arrogant, but, like, he saved me from the Death Star <laughs> in the trench run, <laughs> yeah, yeah. right? So, like, you so we don't, can forgive like, that. He, yeah. he, in the, in, when he could have not, right? But, it's a, like, it can be anything. It could be like, well, no, she actually... When she had the opportunity to potentially further herself at the expense of others, she chose not to. Yeah. Right? She stuck yeah. she stuck to a higher principle. And so, like, in a moment where, as it were, no one was looking, she did a good thing. And I noticed that. And that's why I'm a little bit more understanding and even enjoying of these foibles yeah. in a person. And, and in a way that you wouldn't if she chose herself in that moment. If she had revealed where the base was, her unple- like Leia's unpleasantness is not a little bit funny or even just, oh, that's Leia. It's, wow, not only are you a bad person, but you're not even any fun to be around. <laughs> you know, it's well, a framing thing. Yeah, maybe it goes back to that whole idea of it's really hard to hate someone you know. Yeah. And like maybe the the way that we stop loving one another and stop caring about one another is when we stop, knowing each other i have this kind of theory that especially in relationship whether it be friend like close relationship like friendship or romantic relationship or family the way you lose track of each other is when you stop seeing yourself as connected to that person when you sever the tie and you say and you start interpreting their actions or what they're doing as something separate from yourself but i heard a really good uh point the other day it was talk it was uh, advice to newlyweds and the advice was when you're in an argument with them help them with their side of the argument like if they're really upset and they're saying and they're not sounding rational well then you know think about what they're saying and try to improve the quality of their argument for them because they might have a point but not in a way that's patronizing no no exactly more <laughs> in a like do it in your head, not, mm-hmm. not, not like, oh, what do you mean this? Like, yeah. nobody wants to hear that. But don't make a straw man out of the other person's arguments. Yeah. And I think that goes deeper to this whole, and if you feel that way about a person, even when you're fighting with them, you're going to have a, a level of empathy. Mm-hmm. And we, we see that even develop between the, the, our three heroes is they're very close and they love one another. Because they've seen what each other does in... A deep moment yeah and all of them pick the right side of the track as it were yeah right? exactly i think that this is just something that operates in life subconsciously with us and our friends and people we know and it's not stark in the way it's stark in star wars because we're not all like fighting for our lives like they are but it's a little bit here a little bit there but i saw that big goodness one time so that's why i'm not as judgy about some of the maybe personality defects you might see or personality off-puttingness that sometimes happens so well, it's kind of like um i mean and those bonds do develop we know in reality like when people go to war together or when you know people are in the trenches of like let's say a political campaign or even like when there's intense stress and intense pressure, it can often really bond people Yeah, when they see the sacrifices of others for, for a cause too, right? Mm-hmm. All right, moving on to the droids. 
Um, C-3PO, the spice mines of Kessel. And I wrote, and thus begins the nerds. <laughs> um, you're not permitted in there. Man, the worry wart. Hey, like C-3PO <laughs> just worries and worries and worries. About everything. I know. And he's like, he's like the scared grandma or something who's like, you can't go in there because you'll get hurt. About everything. Like if, C- if, if C-3PO had his druthers, no one would do anything. And he's also like a little bit emotionally manipulative. Like he'll yeah. he'll say to R two D two, "Well, I never really liked you anyway." Yeah. Or yeah. Whereas R two's the opposite. He just gets in the escape pod, and he's got the adventurer spirit. So even though Luke Skywalker is my favorite character in Star Wars, my favorite, I guess, non-human character is R two D two because I think R two D two, even though he's a droid, exemplifies all of the courage that one should. You know, he he just he always takes the first step. He's the first one to go into the unknown, you know. And I love that. I love R 2s care. Like you, you can tell with his little ooh, ooh ooh that he cares about the people around him. But he's not scared. You no. know, he's he's he, he's got more courage than anyone in Star Wars. Oh, for sure. <laughs> which is awesome. And it's it's and a the reason we love personality that develops. Like yeah. you love R two D two. You can't not. What and yeah, I wouldn't believe someone if they said it. <laughs> Like, well, you haven't seen it. (laughs) I mean, like, I think of that, you know, Pixar film Wall-E, and like they say, oh, it really made you feel like the robot had a personality. I'm like, there was a robot before that had a personality. (laughs) Sure, yeah. Well, I mean, I think Wall-E, I mean, and Wall-E had the benefit of having eyes. Yes. And if I remember right, like ways that you could shape his eyes, maybe, I can't remember what they were, but like to to show different emotion. Well, they were on... uh, they were on antenna, so he could like right. change the yeah, yeah change the angle of them yeah, and stuff. Exactly. Whereas R two didn't have that; it was just his sounds and his behavior. <laughs> and yet, you you uh, I mean, it's incredibly well done. It's probably I would argue the best acting too in <laughs> yeah. Star Wars is <laughs> whoa, <laughs> boom roasted. <laughs> but yeah, no, I think R 2s adventurous spirit is very captivating. But C three PO has funny insights too. Is like we must be made to suffer. You know, like he's got a weird existential awareness there. It's like, you're a droid. How do you think like that? But again, it's because, I don't know, like I guess all the other characters in Star Wars, C-3PO represents some archetypal motif of a kind of complainy but wry self-awareness that is only sometimes self-aware, but then gets just like on a path of whatever his path is, and then he's not aware of what he's saying and so, like, he shows flashes of being able to be someone who you could talk to about something, but then flashes, like, he has no idea when he's getting in people's way. I feel like he's, like, the Eeyore of Star Wars. I suppose. With a bit more energy. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. He does. Yeah, he does. Why that. should I stick my neck out for you? <laughs> right? That's yeah. what he says. So, yeah. what a bitch. <laughs> We've had some problems. <laughs> right? So, when... When uh, the four of them are about to get squished in the garbage compactor, he says, "We've had some problems." <laughs> this making, kind of humor, excuses, this yeah. kind of humor, makes Star Wars amazing, yeah. right? Like, see, like Star Wars would definitely not be as funny as it is without C three PO. Even true, if he's not true. making the joke, he's he is the joke. He's often. the joke, and he needs to be in there for it to be funny. And he actually very cares very much for R two. Like, he shows that yeah, a lot. Like, yeah. he does care for him. He's a deep friendship. And then when. When C-3PO says R2's odds for surviving a, you know, uh, the cold out in Hoth, it's like 732 to 1 or something like that. And then C-3PO sees the 
look on Leia's face and Chewie not being happy. He says, well, R2 has been known to be wrong from time to time. <laughs> <laughs> like, he cares. Yeah. And I like when R2 is in the water in Dagobah because it brings levity to a hard situation. Like, they're in a new place. They don't know where it is. And he brings a little humor to it. And I think this is always crucial. Always to be able to bring a little levity to difficult situations is part of the human experience that is so so important and we need to be able to be grateful to people who can do this well and r2 can but i love the scene where 3po interrupts leia and han's kiss in empire yes and he tells them about something that's not working and very very sarcastically uh han says thank you you're welcome, sir. <laughs> so he's not aware of sarcasm at all, right? <laughs> it's just too like the person who's immune to sarcasm. Yes, yeah, they're they're per- perhaps you know someone like that out there in the world. Um, and like R two again saves everyone from the hyper with the hyperdrive. Yes. So this is a theme more in the prequels too, but R two is just saving everyone's life all the time, and he never gets enough credit <laughs> the, the for the unsung it. unsung hero of Star yeah. Wars. Yeah. 3PO, again, what a bitch. He did that at the beginning of Jedi when he knocks on the door, waits less than one second. There doesn't appear to be anybody here. <laughs> what a bitch. Um, but in my favorite, the humor of this mo- of these movies mostly comes from the interactions between 3PO and Han. And the best one, it happens in Return of the Jedi. It's so funny. It's the scene where they've just been captured by the Ewoks and they're sitting on the ground and... 3PO sits up and he's embarrassed to say they think he's a god, right? Yeah. And and Han says, well, why don't you use your new powers to get us out of here? And 3PO says, it just wouldn't be proper. <laughs> it's, it's against my programming to impersonate a deity. And this is a hilarious riff on a subconscious fear of machines' inability to figure things out. <laughs> right? Like, yeah. like yeah. Oh, oh, really? Do you understand? Oh. Like, would you rather your friends get eaten instead <laughs> of using like, oh, your powers yep, that way? Oh, can't, uh, can't do that. <laughs> and I just think, obviously, the droids bring a lot of humor to Star Wars. And 3PO brings a lot of exposition and hilarity. But I think what R2 brings is the component of courage to yeah. star wars right yeah which he, he's it's kind not, of the it's most like, courageous like you can say luke is courageous i mean he goes to dagobah he goes to cloud city by himself he goes to all these places by himself but he's kind of like being led there for one reason or another it's not just i mean you could say he'd have to have courage to go find vader and face him but it's it's just not it doesn't ever really feel like it's the proper adjective to give for his motivations right like oh luke's really courageous to go do this i mean i guess he is in return of the jedi he basically takes on jabba's entire like staff i guess or <laughs> army by himself well with well the thing is with r2 yeah with r2 right yeah, but like, r, well like think about it in that one r2 goes r2 knows the plan obviously because he has the lightsaber with him like r2's the one that Luke has told about what's going on, not 3PO. <laughs> yeah. And so he goes into the lion's den. He goes onto the ship. He goes, he gets separated from 3PO. He gets, he risks getting caught and destroyed. Like we see all of those droids getting destroyed in Jabba's palace, right? Yeah. And yet there never seems to be a moment of hesitation for R2 because he knows that this is what has to be done and he's the one to do it. And, so, and he positions himself perfectly by yeah. the window. Like he so knows. he's very smart, <laughs> too. Like, he's obviously quite intelligent, but I think he's just also so 
brave. Yeah. And that's why I love him and oh. the droids. Brave, and he's got... Yeah, I just still can't get over how much you feel like he has a personality without ever saying a word, yeah. right? Like It's incredible. It's it's great. I do want to do a little rundown of some other characters. Some notes I made were of the Jawas, who are, you know, the scavengers on Tatooine, and they're just trying to make it in a harsh world. <laughs> you know, and they're creatures yeah. too. And I like yeah. I like that, that that awareness is there, I guess. Like the life is pretty harsh for the Jawas and they're just doing their best, you know. Tarkin, fear will keep the locals in line. You know, the power of tyranny and propaganda all wrapped up in one statement there, right? Like, we will use fear to control people. I mean, tyrants aren't always, or even as bald-faced as that, usually. They'd have to have total control to be that forthcoming in their propaganda. But pay attention to anywhere where they seem to be using fear to get their way. As opposed to, yeah. Look carefully at anyone, anyone who who is trying to instill fear in you, yeah. whether it be religion, whether it be whether ideology, it, ideology, whether it be a, a, an individual mm-hmm. trying to make you afraid of something. Like you couldn't go and do that thing. Well, by I yourself. mean, obviously, the empire is based on the Nazis, and so there's like a clear correlation between the totalitarian nature of the two, right? This is also something that, well, I guess I will talk about Rogue One for a second. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Um, One of the things that I was a little bit annoyed, and this also happened in The Last Jedi. One of the things that has annoyed me a little bit in those couple new Star Wars movies is how they seem to do a little bit of moral equivocation between the Rebellion and the Empire. Yeah, the Empire's bad, but the Rebellion's done bad things too. And one of the things that I feel is missing in that analysis is scale. Yes... The Rebellion has done bad things, especially as we see in Rogue One. There are some pretty shady things that the Rebellion was willing to do to get their way. Here's something the Rebellion has never done. The Rebellion has never created a super weapon to destroy billions of beings on a planet. Okay? If you can't see the scale difference between that, I just don't think you have taken moral philosophy very seriously. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, and isn't it interesting how nefarious the propaganda the, is there to plant the seed of doubt in the in the goodness of someone else's cause? Yes. Right? The 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 Empire used the Death Star to kill presumably thousands of their own soldiers on Scarif. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like I can't believe that in Last Jedi DJ's doing some moral equivalence. You know, one day it's the Rebellion, one day it's the First Order. Who knows? The First Order destroyed five planets. (laughs) And the resistance... There's no moral equivalency between people committing genocide and the people trying to stop them. No. That's something that has annoyed me in the new movies. Yes. But uh, (laughs) But anyway. (laughs) But thankfully we don't have that in the The Empire. And the Empire is so bald-faced about it, right? Yeah, there's no none of that. There's no equivocation. Yeah. Um, Then we move on to Lando. He betrays them to save his gas planet. Why the Empire is the worst is they force choices like this on people, right? Like, it's kind of like the mob. I mean, yeah, he has a weakness of conscience, but they're like, hey, <laughs> nice gas planet. You want, you want to keep that <laughs> gas planet? Shame yeah. if anything happened to it kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's just more tyranny forcing Lando into a, into a terrible spot, which gives me a little bit of sympathy, because, especially because he redeems himself, too, by freeing them. He gets mad at the Empire's abuse of the deal. Because they're the people who never stop taking, right? Like, I have altered the deal. Pray I do not alter it further. 
when what's Lando supposed to do about something like that? Well, I guess he does the only thing he can do. He rebels, yeah. right? And he escapes. He has his own like private revolution. We get to Jabba's palace. This is something that struck me as a really ugly side of human nature, how everyone just loves watching that dancing girl, who I know I'll get roasted because I should know what she's called, but I don't off the top of my head. But anyway, they love watching her get eaten by the Rancor. It's like a very ugly human trope. It's they like also the, like the Colosseum type, like wa- watching loving it, destruction yeah. of another person. Watching it again, like they kind of do that about the pig that fall, the pig guard that falls yeah. in too. Like yeah, even his pig guard like people friends. of their own team, as it were, they yeah. love seeing get torn apart and destroyed. And I, and you know what, like I think this is probably a good way of foregoing a negative side of social psychology perhaps maybe the modern equivalent of this is just loving to see someone go down on twitter or something like right. that like yeah, piling on and watching watching some... a mod take someone out now digitally or on on the internet and yet i think that this is a side of our nature that that needs to be made aware of all the time and avoided because yeah, it yeah. can really and... escalate into ugly ugly places and I think it happens a lot, and it happens primarily with the you know the us versus them narrative, right? Where it's suddenly like, oh, we took out one of their guys, right? Like, and and everybody does it. It seems like they glory in in watching people fall. And I think a big part of that is insecurity. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of that is just people seeing someone maybe that they see something better about. The, and, and and then suddenly seeing oh it turns out they're not so good right it, it's it's an excuse it's not actually a a quality to you know glory in the defeat of someone else yeah. it's an excuse not to be better i think mm-hmm. yeah but i mean it's a very it, it's a dark harbinger of what can out what also can come because that kind of mob mentality that's loving the destruction of another person can very easily get pushed into much higher levels of violence. Well, Salem witch trials, uh, lynch mobs. And the aversion of violence until it's the very last option is paramount to civilization. And these little unfortunate quirks of our psychology make it not the last option (laughs) for so many people, which is hard (laughs) it's a hard fact about ourselves i think okay this is something i liked about the emperor soon the rebellion will be crushed and young skywalker will be one of us and i wrote hubris is his downfall because he doesn't see he's so confident in his ability that he doesn't see the weakness in vader right like there's a line he know, uh, he, he's got Vader, the whole thing planned out. He's foreseen it all. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And he's got everything right, except he doesn't see what's in his own house because he's so arrogant that he doesn't feel like he needs to worry about that. And and you get a little bit of a hint of that in the scene where Vader says he wants to go to the forest moon because he's felt young Skywalker down there. And the Emperor says, funny that I have not. And you got to wonder if maybe that's part of it is like Vader being like the the side of Vader that's feeling the good is what's making him able to feel Luke, right? And but so that could be a if you were if you were the emperor on top of your game, that You'd could be, be like, a clue. Wait a second, right? why can't I? Why yeah, why can can't you? I yeah. feel that? Like maybe there's something going on with you also that I should be paying attention to. But he's full of hubris. Like everything about the emperor is overconfidence, and that's what even Luke says that to him. Your um, 
your overconfidence is your weakness, right? Or your arrogance is your weakness. And what does he say is Luke's weakness? Your faith in yeah, your, your friends faith. is yours, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. But like Luke is dead on. Right. The, the emperor loses because he's arrogant. And I think, you know, that obviously not much more needs to be said about that. Yeah, pride it cometh for before itself. a fall. Yep. I also like how the emperor didn't count on the Ewoks. <laughs> so much out there in <laughs> oh, the world to mess this up is a one plan. one of my favorite things i was thinking this as well like he had everything planned out except he didn't prepare for the which i think as an aside is like george lucas giving a little wink and not a wink and a nod i don't mean it to be so flippant giving a little bit of a of a homage to vietnam and how so much of the war in vietnam was won by people hiding in holes yeah and like you know like (laughs) just like uh and people who knew the jungle the Ewoks know the forest, so they have home field advantage, which is why they are able to take out such a vastly superior army, right? Technologically. Well, and I, I think, as I said before, that my first viewing of Star Wars ever was uh, I just loved the Ewoks, and besides the fact that obviously they're cute and cuddly, and and you know, and they have cute little noises, and they they just seem fun. I think it's one of those again really profound uh, archetypes typical stories where it's the little guys that make a big difference. It's the hobbits that destroy the ring, right? It's the children that take on Voldemort. Like what we're seeing here is that there is strength in simplicity. And like, obviously they're, you know, kind of almost like cave dwelling beings. And yet they're, they're pure and, they are kind to each other, I guess. But more than anything else, uh, they're loyal to one another, and they're working together, and they're and they're and they're underestimated. And I love the idea of great evils uster, um, underestimating little goods. Yes, right. Like, That's a good point. And I think that is so well pulled out in uh, Return of the Jedi. Is those are the things that overcome. It's the it's the little plant growing through the concrete, right? The, mm, the weak yeah. little plant busting up the concrete. It's whatever it is. It's it's like you said. It's the it's Luke saying that his father was a Jedi. Yeah, like it's a little statement, but it probably like it probably if you think about imagine like just reading this from Vader's perspective, it probably hit him like a ton of bricks. Yeah. Like, I was a Jedi. Mm -hmm. And that's why you're not killing me. Yeah. The the moment of enlightenment where he's like, oh, uh, no. But the Ewoks are such a perfect representation, at least in my mind, of the little good. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, the Emperor with his hubris getting taken out that way. Let the hate flow through you. And so I was, man, what a dick. (laughs) (laughs) And then... He is. The Emperor's such a dick. I just wonder, like... You know? And then one of the things that I wondered when I was watching it is what could consume a person to the point where they would want to be... To, to have no friends. Like I guess it's power. Like, at the end of the day... And hatred. Yeah, but what is the thing that the Emperor wants? What is he always striving for? Complete and utter domination over everything. Yeah, the, the tyrant. Yeah. Right? He dissolves the Republic. Because, to create the first galactic empire. Because he wants to be... I know I wouldn't talk about him. Those pre, the, the prequel <laughs> that shall not be named. Right, yeah. <laughs> but and at the end of the day, that seems to be his only motivating force, is power and having power over others. And like, what does he seem to like 
have the most glee in. It's when he's watching Luke come to the dark side, when he's watching Luke destroy yeah. himself. Well, and I think it's it's educational to notice that the most evil person is a arrogant, narcissistic asshole. Like that that's striving for power. He's belittling others. He even belittles Vader a little bit. He makes a joke of others. He's overconfident. I'm not going to say he reminds me of anyone in power in the world right now, but I guess there might, there there could be parallels to draw every now and again. <laughs> but there's some good in everyone, right, Luke? <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll see. We'll see with oh, the emperor. Yeah. There, there's going to be some good in the emperor. <laughs> but I think. Yeah, his motivation is just like a slightly like he's he's probably very contemptuous of life. Like he just he there's a part of the emperor that well, not a part. The, the biggest part of the emperor hates being. Right. So he if he can't destroy all of it, he wants to be in control of it because at least then he gets to say what happens to it. Right. Which yeah. I think is, you know, Jordan Peterson talks about this a lot too, like the people who just hate being so much that they want to destroy it. Right. Yeah, or corrupted or corrupted. something. And it definitely seems like he wants to corrupt it yeah. more than anything. Like the, yeah, like you said, his greatest joy is corrupting Luke. Yes. That's even like... Well, and actually... In a way, destroying him. Keeping Vader... And like really making Vader miserable too. Like. Yeah. A couple final thoughts about Lando before we get into the last section here. I love in the Battle of Endor, Lando gets closer to the Star Destroyers which is really quick thinking in a tricky moment, which I think is a major component of leadership, right? Like he's, you won't last long next to those Star Destroyers. We'll last longer than we do next to that Death Star. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like yeah. that's like, what a what a crazy, tricky plan to just make. oh my gosh. Like normally you don't go fly beside Star Destroyers, but at least maybe that Death Star will hit a few while we're flying among them, you know? And yeah. I like that. I like yeah. that ability to think as it were on the fly. <laughs> quickly right i yeah. think that's a major component of leadership that lando shows right there and uh when lando gets out of the death star after he finishes the last thing and the fire's all around him and just like the sweetness of his yell like the sweetness of and joyous joyous yell of success is so um enlivening from lando you know so i really noticed that anyway just before we end, I have a last section here, which I've entitled Star Wars Magic. And so these are just some of the things I noticed again while watching this movie that I think I just, it's not even like an insight kind of thing. It's just things about Star Wars that I think if you love Star Wars, you understand. And I guess I just want all of you to know that I feel it too. <laughs> the opening crawl of A New Hope now feels so much more alive because of Rogue One, especially with how deadened I felt the original like the prequels made the original trilogy felt so when i first read i guess both the first two paragraphs of the opening crawl for no hope but especially the first one to me it just feels so much more revitalized because of rogue one like the rebel spies have struck a victory at a imperial base kind of thing right and now having the visuals of that and the movie of that are so exciting and again not to focus on the negative but i just feel like the prequels did so much damage to like just created plot holes in the original trilogy that frustrate me so much that it's just it was such a good thing to be reminded of a prequel technically 
because it happens just before a new hope that actually made it better i think you know so thank you rogue one yes yes <laughs> the music and sound of star wars are arguably the greatest in movie history and i don't mean this as hyperbole either like the sound effects and the music of star wars are so encompassing of it and so beautiful you know and, and so well timed like, yeah there's it brings brings the emotion right away yeah and I mean, the the only only movies that i think come close to that it would be lord of the rings sure like they often the yeah. music will the music for sure but i mean what like the sound effects of star wars are like the tie fighter and the blaster sound and the ships and just everything uh, like just the way things sound are it's iconic. beautiful yeah it's like you know? yeah yeah and, you know you don't usually talk about sound in something but i just like star wars that's something star wars has always done probably better than anyone my heart is wrapped around the lightsaber right how it sounds on its own how it looks how it sounds in a battle the elegance of it how it stands out from everything around it it's just cinematic genius the lightsaber i think you you know one of my earliest memories again is obi-wan igniting the lightsaber but even just the first time it's ignited in obi-wan's house like you're just kind of blown away by how different it is from the rest of the movie and how like in its own category it is i think probably <laughs> it's not like the lightsaber is underemphasized in pop culture but uh, i think again watching this movie with fresh eyes i tried to be like wow yeah this is an unbelievable addition into our culture the lightsaber and what it just feels like in the movie you know mm-hmm um, the music that plays when they rescue Han and Luke on Hoth, what a pump up. The Rogue Squadron, you know, like, I just love it. And they play it one other time, but I can't remember. The Imperial March. <laughs> yes. I just, nothing else besides that. The the space opera of Empire Strikes Back and the Imperial March is incredible. Even just kind of seeing little technological developments between the films, like the AT-ATs and Empire Strikes Back, and then all of the spaceships and Return of the Jedi that just weren't in previous movies that look so cool. You know, like I'm thinking of Vader's ship, especially in the very first scene of Return of the Jedi when you see Vader yeah, and the ship in, going yeah. into the Death Star. And you're like, whoa, we haven't seen that ship yet in Star Wars. And I imagine watching it again for the first time and be like, whoa, like that looks so cool, you know? Like, man, the graphics have come so far in six <laughs> years. 1983, we finally made it. The line that Mon Mothma used when she says that the Emperor is going to be on the Death Star, many Bothans died to bring us this information, and I thought of the sacrifice of a revolution, and never forget those who have fought for your freedom. Yeah. And uh, I have a little bit of a pitch to Disney. This is the movie I want to see. I want to see the Bothan movie, where they get the information to the rebellion that the Emperor is going to be on the Death Star. I want to see that movie. I want to see those heroes even though the emperor later says oh i I let them do that i I gave them the information i guess so but i i yeah that's true he let them know that he would be there but but in the end it was it was worthwhile information like the thing is you never know even if your enemy's giving you something because they're trying to bring you into a trap yeah i guess i guess it couldn't be its own movie i guess it would have to be auxiliary in another movie though i want to meet some heroic i want to meet some heroic bothans okay Ewoks and the heroes, they couldn't be more different, but they find a way to work together. And this is such a hopeful undertone for this film. Like, there could be no no groups more different. <laughs> true, <laughs> and yet they true. figure out how to work together. And it's like, again, like everything in Star Wars, it's at bottom hopeful. The hope side always wins, you know? 
in the end. And I love that about it. I think that's why it's sixth round. The last 30 minutes of Return of the Jedi would be my choice for the only thing I would ever watch if I had to. Like if someone said you only get 30 minutes of film to watch for that. Like I the, the last the third act of Return of the Jedi like I I've told you before. I don't think Return of the Jedi as a f- movie as a whole is probably was definitely the weakest of the three. But the final 30 minutes in the try storytelling of the moon, the space battle and the throne room as good as cinema has ever been for storytelling and emotion and climaxing a movie. It's just incredible. I love at the end of return of the Jedi, the joy and celebration with friends being the crux of living, right? <laughs> you know, yeah. like that's what they go to. And just uh, again, cause we watched the 1983 edition. We got yub nub, <laughs> the actual Ewok song, not yes. whatever, whatever other weird. filth they put in. <laughs> and then I, I also just included, I guess there's about six of them here, but like I remember talking to my friend Tim in Korea one time and we were just talking about Star Wars magic, the moments of Star Wars where you just are won over by its grandeur and and beauty and magic. And there's a few for me. And so one of them is um, the two sons on Tatooine when Luke goes up there and the music swells. I mean, that could be maybe the most iconic scene in all of Star Wars, but it's a Star Wars magic moment for me. Another one is the cantina opening scene, the music and all the characters. And you're just like given this like potential insight into this way bigger world, but not really delivered. Like you're not really given any more than that. You know, (laughs) I love that part. I love when the excitement of the battle of Yavin, like that whole battle is exciting, but the magic moment to me is Luke's trench run. And especially in the moment he exhales after he's shot the torpedoes, Han has saved him and they go into the exhaust port, you know, just the <sighs> after he's turned off his computer and all of that. And it's just like, oh, my gosh. Wow. I am blown away by this. When Luke pulls the lightsaber for the first time in the Wampa Cave, it's a Star Wars magic moment for me, which actually I will admit I felt the same kind of feeling in Force Awakens when Ray does it. When Ray pulls the force, pulls the lightsaber yeah. with the force yeah. past Kylo, I was feeling the same kind of feeling as I feel in these moments. Um, when Yoda lifts the X-Wing out of the swamp in Dagobah, that's a Star Wars magic moment for me. And of course, the biggest one is Luke and Vader's battle in the throne room at Return of the, at the end of Return of the Jedi. The green lightsaber, the red lightsaber, the dark surrounding, the Emperor laughing. That entire scene is just magic to me. And again, my biggest takeaway from Star Wars, and this has been the joy I've gotten out of it from being an adult as opposed to like as a kid, it's the lightsabers, it's the battles, it's the excitement as an adult. My biggest, deepest takeaway from star Wars is that it stays with us because it uses the deepest archetype. You can only defeat evil after you've faced that part that lives inside of you and beaten it there. And there's an intense humility that comes with that. And so what is your, what are my star Wars matter? Yeah. And deepest or biggest takeaway of star Wars. One of the things that we haven't talked about a lot, but I think is is pretty magical in Star Wars, is the X wings. Uh, oh yeah, like the the, the camaraderie, the kind of wolf pack esque um, brotherhood, and 
every time you watch one of them die, you feel a sense of tragedy. Yeah, like, that's true. Like somehow they've you've and, never and not only... as bad as when like the Y wings blow up or the A wings. Though that's like yeah. sad, but not as sad as an X wing. Yeah, I know dying. it's like you are because I mean a Luke is connected to the X wings and and you inherently know though it's basically not developed at all that there's a relationship there. Yeah, there's a brotherhood of friendship that's being lost. Uh, so for me, I don't know what it was, but the X wing always just held this. And the and, and that brotherhood and this and the and the battling together against evil always held a special place in my heart. There sure, was just this yeah. idea that you know, and then and then the rebellion. These guys are giving everything up. They're going out against almost impossible odds, and they're fighting like that. To me, the great magic of of Star Wars is long odds long odds like, right yeah you're always like there's no way they're gonna win this one like and and there it's always you know they barely get by by the skin of their teeth over and over again and i think that's the hope right that's the hope that star wars gives us that you know no matter how bad it gets no matter what you're facing maybe there's a way out if you if you just yeah. if you if you try and you push you can you can maybe get there. Yeah, that's what I feel like. It's endlessly hopeful. Yeah, even all the way like all the way through. Even at the end of Empire Strikes Back, when it feels like everything's even then, Luke kind of whispers into the night as he's hanging on the bottom of a gas city, and they and Leia hears him, and, mm-hmm. and they come back. Like yeah, the hopefulness, which is I think not as common anymore in storytelling. But the hopefulness that Star Wars gives you is, I think, a big part of Star Wars magic. Yeah. And probably... uh, It's one of those motifs. Yeah. Star Wars has a hundred motifs that stay with you. Yeah. Yeah, it does. That's why it's so special, like Mm -hmm. like you said. And then I think the, the final one is the magic of different places. So for me, for some reason, I can't really say why maybe it's because i'm canadian hoth <laughs> was always my favorite planet like i loved the idea of a snow planet and i yeah, just yeah, thought yeah. it was so i was so taken in by this world that was entirely made of snow and like that people just right. existed in the in this because i always loved the winter and snowboarding and skiing and hockey sure and, yeah, yeah yeah and so for <laughs> for me when you get an, introduced to this planet that's all snow right like, all growing up that was just a thing that stuck in my head of uh, like almost yeah. dreamlike uh, in, in the wonderment that I have. And uh, I would highly recommend a book called Winter by Gopnik, which he ex- explores the beauty of winter in that. So you really get the kind of feeling that I'm trying to describe. But yeah, Star Wars is just so good at putting you into that mindset of appreciating even a climate. Yeah. Just loving everything that's around it and the excitement of it and the adventure of it and the things that it, I guess as the things that I love as an adult now about Star Wars are the little subconscious tidbits it leaves me with that I can think about later more deeply. Yeah. You know, and how that that's way better than like any detail would be about it. Yes. Star Wars would crumble under details. Yeah, it would lose all its magic. It's about feelings. It's, yeah. it's like magic, like you said. And so, um, with that, 
I guess that's the end of my favorite episode thus far of Really True Fiction. Maybe we'll never recover from this. <laughs> this is the, the pinnacle. Again, like this is the movie that has meant more to me. Well, these movies, these three movies have meant more to me than any others ever have. And I just want to express my gratitude to you for listening to this and for indulging us in such a <laughs> crazy, silly endeavor as like talking about Star Wars for almost three hours. Um, but we really appreciate it. And um, may the force be with you. Thank you.